Hey there, everybody. It's James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast, and it's time we start talking a little more clearly, I suppose, about what's going on uh, in America, in the West today. In the um, what do we mean by the West? By the way, what I mean specifically, although it extends more further, uh, further than this, uh, more broadly, is um, largely we we would think the English-speaking West, but it's places that have been heavily influenced and touched by um, the English or and or Scottish Enlightenment. So a lot of us would associate that with almost Americanism, but it, it, its roots are back in English common law in the sense of personal liberties. And um, what we're undergoing in these places is a cultural revolution. And uh, this has been a point I've been raising for literally three or four years. Uh, in February 2020, which is three years ago now, is before George Floyd. In fact, almost three months to the day before George Floyd died and the uh, kind of kinetic portion of the American Cultural Revolution kicked off, I met with a number of officials in, in Washington, D.C., including some Department of Defense officials, and asked them if they were aware that we were entering into kind of the phase that precedes a act of cultural revolution and that it would probably arise through critical race theory within six months of February 2020. Well, it turned out that three months later, at the end of May 2020, George Floyd died, and that's precisely what happened. I, uh, needless to say, was not taken seriously at the time. Um, so it's a point I've been raising for a while, uh, kind of excitingly, I suppose, because it's finally going to start to mainstream. At the time of this recording, just the other day, Bill Maher, uh, what's his show called real time or something like that? You know, this is sort of like mainstream dissident left sort of, uh, you know, material. Um, he talked about it. He, he talked about wokeness specifically had images of Mao and Lenin on the screen, talked about it being in terms of a cultural revolution. And so this idea is mainstreaming. Uh, and I think, we should probably understand it more clearly. Uh, some of you have heard my podcasts about, say, struggle sessions. Um, many of you commented that the podcast I did about surviving a struggle session in our, our contemporary circumstances is, um, they said that you've said that it's very valuable. It's one of the most valuable podcasts I've recorded. That's a tactic of cultural revolution. Um, that's straight out of the Maoist playbook. So what we need to understand and hopefully I will put out more about this also in shorter form than this uh, episode in which I'm going to read from Mao Zedong so you can actually hear Mao Zedong because we don't teach communism in this country. We have very red-washed education. We don't understand communism. We don't know Mao. We don't know about Mao. But what we have going on is something derived from Marxism. It is very uh, hybridized, uh, syncretic is a better word, or syncretistic. It is cobbled in parts of uh, fascistic thought. It is cobbled in fascistic corporatism and is in fact using that as the lever primarily in the West. It's gone out of economic analysis and moved into cultural analysis, primarily uh, ideas like uh, identity politics, identity cultures, um, it's also absorbed back into and using many uh, more uh, classically Hegelian ideals about a, the establishment of a technocratic state. Um, so it's very complicated, 
I've done a series, a number of podcasts explaining, and I'm not trying to say it's complicated. Like you need to listen to me, like some kind of guru. It's just that things aren't the way they were in the 1950s. The last time we were really doing a good anti-communist push, things have have, have complicated, uh, and it, it has picked up what necessary tools it needed to continue. Um, and some of that is a legacy of Mao and also Mao's successor, um, who worked with him in his government during his reign, Deng Xiaoping, who famously commented, I don't care if the cat is black or white so long as it catches mice, which means they don't really care how they get their power and how they get their their uh, technocratic control mechanism or under their thumb. It, what it but they, if it has to use corporations, fine. If it has to use identity politics, fine. If it has to use socialist tools, fine. They don't care if the cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice. Um, it's, it's become very uh, kind of opportunistic in that way. But what we haven't done, in my opinion, is is actually go back and look at Mao, specifically uh, the struggle session, of course, talking about I did and talking about... Um, what am I trying to think of? Not just the struggle sessions, but Robert J. Lifton's book about the brainwashing in China, which I've likened to SEL programs repeatedly uh, in our schools, like which I've also likened to DEI training, diversity, equity, inclusion training, unconscious bias training, all of these things that are happening in your workplaces. These are all Maoist elements. And so what I am going to do for this episode after that preamble is going to one of my favorite websites for resources, marxists.org, um, under the heading of the selected works of Mao Zedong. Uh, he has a speech he gave on February 27th, 1957, on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. This was a speech, it says, that was given at the 11th enlarged, se or 11th session enlarged, whatever that means, of the Supreme State Conference, Comrade Mao Zedong went over the verbatim record and made certain additions before its publication in the People's Daily on June 19th, 1957. So I'm not yet a tremendous scholar of Chinese history or the Cultural Revolution. There's a great book that I've read a little bit of that's very long and it's a little difficult called uh, The World Turned Upside Down that discusses the Chinese Cultural Revolution. This 1957 is technically not during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, though it is in fact before it. Uh, a little bit of Chinese history without getting into the great depths of it, we'll touch on a little bit more. The CCP arose in the 20s. It was competing against the Nationalist Party that's going to matter, which was called the Guomintang. The Guomintang was a, a socialist, but in the nationalist sense, I don't want to dip too heavily and give ideas like national socialism, but it was a socialist oriented nationalist party. And uh, the CCP was infiltrating it intentionally on the orders of Moscow, the common turn, the communist international party um, was deliberately infiltrating it and trying to subvert it very much like the woke infiltrated and subverted the occupy wall street movement, for example. And, um, which was another kind of leftist populist style thing. And so they uh, end up by 1949, it took them 19, till 1949 to succeed. And there's a revolution in China. The CCP takes over, establishes itself. Mao Zedong 
as a longtime operative in this regard. In fact, he was one of the infiltrators of the Guomintang for the CCP. Um, takes power. And for a number of years, he runs things. And so now here we are, seven, eight years in 1957. He says seven years. So seven years into his power under the CCP, the emerging socialist state. We're seven years into their five-year plan. I'm just kidding. The five-year plan is actually kind of being announced here. Um, and uh, what happened following this, beginning in 1958, is a horrific chapter of human history called the Great Leap Forward, or sometimes just the Great Leap. Uh, it was a program by Mao to modernize China in line with socialist theory and to uh, kind of bring it, try to bring it, force it onto the world stage at the same level as, as countries like the United States and uh, the Soviet Union, which um, did not succeed. As a matter of fact, it was a catastrophic failure that may have killed as many as 55 million people. Uh, it was so bad, as a matter of fact, that Mao Zedong got kicked out of power. Um, and then he made his comeback to power a number of years later in 1966, um, after this huge collapse. And then he launches the Cultural Revolution, which is where you have the struggle sessions. You, if you want a movie version, watch The Red Violin. Um, this is where you have the, I mean, struggle sessions were taking place in the prisons and moving into the education system even here. Lifton documented things that were happening in the early 1950s in Chinese thought reform prisons. And so before the actual cultural revolution. But the stuff we think of as the destruction of the four olds, mobilization of the youth, etc. This is a 1960s project that kept unfolding until Mao's death in 1976. Um, and then in 1977-ish, I might be wrong by a year, Deng Xiaoping took power. There was a period after Mao's death where it wasn't clear who was going to become the chairman of the CCP, and then Deng Xiaoping ends up in that position after a long time working under Mao. Uh, but so that's a little bit of history. Some of that's contextually relevant. You definitely need to understand in light of things that are trying to happen again right now, that there's never an, there's a never ending fight between the communists and the nationalists, both of whom are geared towards societal transformation, both of whom are kind of the same thing, but with different orientations. Um, nationalist versus supra or in internationalist. Um, this is nothing new, and this is why certain nationalist branded movements, ahem, Christian nationalism, one of the many reasons why that's a linguistic trap you're not going to, to you know, be able to, to, to avoid if you go in that direction. But um, that's going to be relevant to what's going on here. Uh, secondly, you will want to know, like I said, that this is on the eve of the Cultural Revolution, or sorry, the, the Great Leap Forward, which was a catastrophe. So he's basically at points in this speech giving you the sales pitch for the Great Leap Forward, which is about to kill 55 million people and do untold economic damage. It's probably one of the most catastrophic and expensive human mistakes ever made. And the sales pitch in here makes it sound so great. And so it's useful to remember that when you hear sales pitches for great things like great leaps forward and great resets and things like that. Um, the sales pitch can sound pretty good. And then you end up with 55 million people walking into a blender and a complete economic collapse. Um, 
So anyway, what I think you will hear as we go through Mao, which you often probably don't hear, uh, and I find Mao tedious, honestly, though is uncanny parallels to what we're going through today, strengthening the case that yes, in fact, quite historically grounded, quite theoretically grounded, we are being put through a cultural revolution in the United States, in Britain, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, and in countries uh, also throughout Western Europe, um, though it's a little contextually different there. And if we don't want to end up in another um, unbelievable human blender, I think it's probably best that we diagnose this correctly, understand what it means, and start taking the correct smart action to stop it. We are already in a bad position. We should also know that we're also in a sub, we're already in a subordinate position. We cannot defeat this thing by strength. We have to defeat it in other ways. Um, we don't con control enough institutions any longer to be able to, to 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 hammer this thing out. It's going to have to be uh, allowed to fall. It's going to have to be discredited. It's going to have to be embarrassed. It's going to have to bankrupt itself. It's going to have to. Uh, fall under the weight of its own hubris, under the weight of its own failure, under the weight of its own idiocy and arrogance. And that requires exposing it. That requires refusing to go along with it. That re requires learning to see through its manipulations and not going into them. We fell for COVID big time. We shouldn't make such mistakes again. So anyway, now, uh, on the correct handling of contradictions among the people, this is a fairly subtle speech. Mao was educated in Europe. He is not an idiot. Um, was not a dumbass by any means. This is so there's some subtlety here. He says our general subject is the correct handling of contradictions among the people. Okay, of course, just for a little more theoretical background, which recently I'm told uh, on Twitter by significantly big names that we don't need to know theoretical background to, to deal with these problems. We just have to realize that they're doing bad things and that'll be enough. Contradictions, the, the whole Hegelian method. Turns out the people saying that, by the way, are Hegelians. So maybe they're actually protecting their home turf. But um, they're not Marxists. There are Hegelians who are, are anti-Marxist as well. Okay, so the Hegelian idea is that history is chugging along. It is progressing. It is going somewhere, as a matter of fact, to a final point where all the issues and contradictions are resolved as the idea becomes perfected, which is to say as our understanding of the idea becomes increasingly total and perfect. Okay, And the way that that happens is through the clash of opposites through contradictions. And so Marxists adopted this into their dialectical materialism. Lenin and Mao use this. And so when they bring up the contradictions among the people, what they're talking about are various conflicts, various disagreements, various um, issues that are being brought into a kind of a cultural or even sometimes political clash that have to be ushered to the correct synthetic solution so that the party gains more power. And so our general subject is the correct handling of contradictions among the people. For convenience, let us discuss it under 12 subheadings. Yeah. Although, the referen although references will be made to contradictions between ourselves and the enemy, this discussion will center on contradictions among the people. 
Okay, so we have to pause again for a little vocabulary lesson before we can continue. The people, as he's going to clarify in a moment, but I want to lay it out before he does. The people mean the people who support communism. Nobody else is the people. The enemy means people who do not support communism. The issue is that there's a gray area of people they still believe can be brought to supporting communism, and those people get lumped in kind of generously with the people, but they will be summarily excommunicated if they don't convert within correct amount of time of having received the gospel of communism. So when we hear the people in the enemy, we have to keep very clear what those mean. The people is not the people that live in China. It is not all of the Chinese in this case. It is those who support the regime. It is those who support the CCP. Those are the only people who count as the people. The enemy is anybody who doesn't support the CCP. Okay, so he's going to use this terminology, the people and the enemy, the people and the enemy, over and over and over again. The enemy is anybody or anything outside forces like the United States, inside forces like people who don't want to be in a communist shithole, but also counter-revolutionaries and uh, intellectuals arguing against their theory and so on. Those are the enemy. It's everybody that's against their project. So, 12 subheadings. Number one, two types of contradictions differing in nature. Never before has our country been as united as it is today. Now, I don't know for sure, but if you believe our country here, there's a lot of weird Chinese history here too that has to be addressed. If you believe here that our country means only the people who count as people, that's a tautology. It doesn't actually say anything. Um, this idea of unity, which by the way, the Biden administration, if you recall, pushed very hard uh, very early in its, uh, its, its administration is going to also be central here. Never before has our country been as uni united as it is today. Now let's stop for a second. What country? China. China is a complicated political entity. And again, I'm no historian of China, but they like we like to have this myth around China. And it's extraordinarily dangerous, say, if I went to China, to say what I'm about to say, which is that there was no such thing as a, uni uh, as a unified China for very long. We like to, we have this myth that there's a 5,000 year history of China. No, no, there were many dynasties that were often literally at war with one another that did not recognize one another. It's like saying that Germany has a long history, but even more extreme. That's not true. There were lots of different warring and, and sometimes unified and sometimes a lot allied states within the region we generally consider to be German or now in this case China. Today there was you know various dynasties ruling over various areas. It was very actually fractured. The idea of a unified China going back thousands of years is a complete myth. The idea of a Chinese culture going back thousands of years is also a myth. Uh, and this was a myth that was deliberately pushed under this united China mentality, which now seeks, you know, this so-called one country, one language um, policy where everybody has to learn Mandarin. Uh, Cantonese is, is out. All these other languages are out. I'm not up on that enough. But the point is that Chinese history is not the way that we've heard Chinese history. There's not this contiguous 5,000-year kind of monolithic civilization that gets appealed to the way that we tend to think of 
Um, it's much more complicated and messy than that. And the idea of a kind of unified China under, you know, certain emperors is sort of a later development. Um, and then certainly the, the mythology was encouraged by this sentence, basically. Never before has our country been as united as it is today. The victories of the bourgeois democratic revolution and of the socialist revolution and our achievements in socialist construction have rapidly changed the face of old China. A still brighter future lies ahead for our motherland. By the way, communists very frequently refer to their country as a motherland as opposed to, say, the Nazis with the fatherland, just as a point to raise. The days of national disunity and chaos, which the people detested, are gone, never to return. See, here you can see that construction of that mythology I was just telling you about. Led by the working class and the Communist Party, our 600 million people, united as one, are engaged in the great task of building socialism. The unification of our country, the unity of our people, and the unity of our various nationalities these are the basic guarantees for the sure triumph of our cause. However, this does not mean that contradictions no longer exist in our society. To imagine that none exist is a naive idea, which is at variance with objective reality. We are confronted with two types of social contradictions, those between ourselves and the enemy, and those among the people. They are the, uh, the two are totally different in nature. Now, this whole disunity chaos thing, you can imagine the Biden administration having given that speech, right? The days of American disunity and chaos, which the people detested over the last several years, especially under evil orange man, are gone, never to return. We have a new dawn led by the uh, Democratic Party. Our hundreds of millions of people united as one are engaged in the great task of building back better for an equitable future, the unification of our country, the unity of our people, and the uni unity of our various uh, ethnicities, races, sexes, genders, etc., are the basic guarantees for the sure triumph of our cause. I mean, you could literally hear the Biden administration making the same speech. That should not be missed. We just have to update it. So it's really funny because a lot of people know, if they know anything about Mao and Chinese communist history, they know that Mao referred to what we call Maoism as Marxist-Leninism or Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. What we're undergoing in the West is a Maoist revolution with American characteristics. Make that very clear in your mind. And that's what the point of this episode is going to be, is to make that more clear. To understand these two different types of contradictions correctly, Mao tells us, we must first be clear on what is meant by, quote, the people, see, and what is meant by, quote, the enemy. The concept of, quote, the people varies in content in different countries and in different periods of history in a given country. Okay, so do you understand what he just did? We're going to talk about the people. We're going to say what that really means. We're going to talk about the enemy. And he says, oh, there's lots of conceptions of it. Different times, different places, different countries, different, different nationalities, lots of different things. People have thought about the people. We have thought about the people here in China in different ways and over different times. But, and he's going to say, take our own country, for example, and explain what that means. But they're going to give the correct definition of the people in the end, right? So take our own country, for example. During the war of resistance against Japan, all those classes, strata, and social groups opposing Japanese aggression 
came within the category of the people, while the Japanese imperialists, their Chinese collaborators, and the pro-Japanese elements were all enemies of the people. During the War of Liberation, the U.S. imperialists and their running dogs, the bureaucrat capitalists, the landlords and the Guomintang reactionaries who represented those two classes, were the enemies of the people. While the other classes, strata and social groups, which opposed them, all came within the category of the people. See, so he's already setting this up. The people who go along with our program are the people. The people who go against our program are the enemy of the people. You see how that works? A people is defined by the conflict that they're being thrust into, the Hegelian conflict. This is a very Marxist Hegelian idea that he's presenting here. He says, at the present stage, the period of building socialism, the classes, strata, and social groups which favor, support, and work for the cause of socialist construction all come within the category of the people. Could it be more clear who counts as people? While the social forces and groups which resist the socialist revolution and are hostile to or sabotage socialist construction are all enemies of the people. Could he be more clear that when he says people, just like I said a moment ago, he means people to support the socialist project in China and the CCP. When he says enemies of the people, he means everybody that opposes the socialist project in China and the CCP. That's got, you've got to understand that. So the contradictions between ourselves and the enemy are antagonistic contradictions, he says. Within the ranks of the people, the contradictions among the working people are non-antagonistic, while those between the exploited and exploiting classes have a non-antagonistic as well as an antagonistic aspect. So now he's got three different kinds of categories of, of um, conflict or contradiction. There's the people versus the enemy, which we just discussed. That's antagonistic. Within the people, there are differences. Those are non-antagonistic. Those are going to be resolved as we're going to find out through struggle sessions. And then you have the issue between the exploited and exploiting classes that can be both antagonistic and non-antagonistic at the same time. He says there have always been contradictions among the people, but they are different in content in each period of the revolution and in the period of building socialism. So there was a revolution, things were one way, now we're building socialism, now they're another way. In the conditions prevailing in China today, the contradictions among the people comprise the contradictions within the working class, right? So those are disagreements within the people who support the party. The contradictions with the, within the peasantry, the contradictions within the intelligentsia, the contradictions with, between the working class and the peasantry, the contradictions between the workers and the peasants on the one hand and the bourgeoisie and so on. Our people's government is one that genuinely represents the people's interests. It is a government that serves the people. Doesn't that sound like Kamala Harris? <laughs> Literally. Nevertheless, there are certain, I mean, she has to say together, 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 a few times to get it. But nevertheless, there are still certain contradictions between this government and the people. These include the contradictions between the interests of the state and the interests of the collective on the one hand, and the interests of the individual on the other, between democracy and centralism. 
Okay, before I carry on, I'm going to reread this whole sentence, but I want to stop with this democracy and centralism. Because what he's doing when he sets these things up in contradictions, and Hegelian or Marxist or dialectical or hermetic or whatever you want, thought, they're all the same. When there's a difference, it has to be understood through the hermetic principle of polarity. Difference means, opposites mean, the opposites aren't real. They are the same in kind but different in degree. And so thus they have to be seen as parts of one dynamic whole and then understood in terms of a synthetic combination. So in other words, you're going to mix them together. So the interests of the collective and the interests of the individual have to be mixed into one thing, the individual who lives in the collective, right? That's Marxism. That's the idea of, of their collectivism between democracy and centralism. And so what he's actually going to argue later in this speech is that, and this is very important, that you don't have democracy unless you have centralism. In other words, centralized dictatorial power. And so actually democracy exists under a dictatorship only, which sounds like a contradiction in and of itself, but that's the result of the synthetic thought. But what it boils down to is exactly what Lenin said, exactly what I've articulated a number of times in other places, at other in other podcasts and in writing, and all over the place and in public talks and all over the place and all over the place and all over the place is that democracy for communists only exists when it's under communism. Okay, so he's got all these contradictions. The interests of the uh, collective on the one hand and the interests of the individual on the other between democracy and centralism, between the leadership and the lead and the contradictions arising from the bureaucratic style of work of some of the state personnel in their relations with the masses. All of these are also contradictions among the people. Generally speaking, the fundamental identity of the people's interests underlies the contradiction among the people. So the reason the contradictions within the people aren't antagonistic is very simple, because they're all interested in the people and the people's welfare, or at least the party says they are, so that they can justify all the abuses that they do of the people in the people's name. And those contradictions that arise, like abusing people, having a dictatorship, having local officials that abuse people, prison judges, people going to prison, blah, blah, blah. Those are just non-antagonistic issues that are working themselves out between people who have the same long-term vision, the same value set, but don't know how to do it together. That's the non-antagonistic contradictions within the people. In our country... The contradiction between the working class and the national bourgeoisie comes under the category of contradictions among the people. By and large, the class struggle between the two is a class struggle within the ranks of the people because the Chinese national bourgeoisie has a dual character. In the period of the bourgeois democratic revolution, it had both a revolutionary and a conciliationist side to its character. So before it was one way, but now... In the period of the socialist revolution, exploitation of the working class for profit constitutes one side of the character of the national bourgeoisie, while its support of the constitution and its willingness to accept socialist transformation constitute the other. So what he's saying is, basically, we took the business interests and we've cowed them, and they are now operatives or functionaries of the socialist party, but they're still engaged in a lot of their old tricks. But now, at least, we have them under our control. So things are very different. Before the so-called bourgeois democratic revolution, where the bourgeois was overthrown by the people's democracy, before that, it was different. It was a different kind of, of, of conflict because they were actually at opposites in terms of not just class interests, but also in terms 
of uh, their fundamental disposition for what they wanted in their country. And it would have been antagonistic then. He says the national bourgeoisie differs from the imperialists, the landlords, and the bureaucrat capitalists. The contradiction between the national bourgeoisie and the working class is one between exploiter and exploited and is by its nature antagonistic. But in the concrete conditions of China, this antagonistic contradiction between the two classes, if properly handled, can be transformed into a non-antagonistic one and resolved by peaceful methods. Those methods boil down to a communist cartel. However, the contradiction, which is if you want to do business in China, if you want to be in the national bourgeoisie, you're going to be under the dictates and rules and serve at the pleasure of the CCP, which is exactly how their businesses have operated now for decades. However, the contradictions between the working class and the national bourgeoisie will change into a contradiction between ourselves and the enemy if we do not handle it properly and do not follow the policy of uniting with, criticizing, and educating the national bourgeoisie, or if the national bourgeoisie does not accept this policy of ours. You see this? Listen, businesses. Listen, socialites. Listen, important people. If you accept all of our policies, we can do this peacefully. If not, it's going to be antagonistic. It's going to be ugly. That's what he's saying here, right? It can be peaceful. All you have to do is accept all of our terms and do it our way. It doesn't, then we can work it out through peaceful means. However, if you refuse, then it's going to be antagonistic and they're going to use power. They're going to use raw power. Not just coercive, but probably directly force, given that Mao famously also said power flows from the barrel of a gun. Um, but there are lots of other tools, economic, social, etc., that they can use. And we see these in China, the development now of a social credit system. We have a kind of implicit social credit system that's not so literal in the United States, except where it comes to what we might call the inter internationalist bourgeoisie the large international business community, which is brought to heel under the new policy, under ESG, just like Klaus Schwab says in The Great Reset and in The Great Narrative for a Better Future. See, ESG and the public-private partnership that they are facilitating at the World Economic Forum will lead people into the corporations, into uh, the sustainable and inclusive path toward a better future, according to their dictates. In other words, into the stakeholder Soviet. However, if they don't want to, they can make things very uncomfortable for you. They can leverage you, blah, blah, blah. And if you still resist, Klaus says, we're going to basically indoctrinate the youth to turn against you, which they're also doing. That's literally the point of the great narrative, which is Klaus Schwab's 2022 book. Since they are different in nature, Mao says, the contradictions between ourselves and the enemy and the contradictions among the people must be resolved by different methods. To put it briefly, the former entails drawing a clear distinction between ourselves and the enemy, so we're going to make it very clear who's with the people and who's against the people. There's going to be a big sorting of people in that regard. And the latter entails drawing a clear distinction between right and wrong. See, so once you're among the people, it's a moral battle. We're going to struggle you into believing right and not wrong and doing right and not wrong according to their policy. But before that, we have to draw clear distinctions and we have to make sure we know who the good guys are and the bad guys are. You understand? So with the enemy, there's the good guys and the bad guys, and it's that kind of fight. And then once they get you inside, once you're in the cult, once you're in the Maoist Marxist cult, 
then it's a matter of teaching people the conflicts boil down to understanding the difference between right and wrong. In other words, adopting cult doctrine, which is right, and abandoning any values contrary to cult doctrine or outside of cult, cult doctrine, which is wrong. This is this is what he's describing. It is, of course, true that the distinction between ourselves and the enemy is also one of right and wrong. See, because it's the good guys and the bad guys. For example, the question of who is in the right, we or the domestic and foreign reactionaries, the imperialists, the feudalists, and the bureaucrat capitalists, is also one of right and wrong. But it is in a different category from questions of right and wrong among the people. As I just said. Our state is a people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class and based on the worker-peasant alliance. That's his claim. Okay, a people's democratic di dictatorship. Now, I've outlined in the past what we mean by a people's democratic dictatorship. Only the people count within the democracy. It's only democratic if it's socialist. And it's a dictatorship to administer and enforce and make sure that that's how it actually works, which includes, as he will say, as Lenin said, as Marcuse mentions in Repressive Tolerance, as comes up again and again, as we experience with the deplorables and with the J6 stuff here in the United States, that there are certain people who must be suppressed. We see it in social media. We see it in the censorship. And there are certain voices that must be suppressed and censored and silenced. And then there are certain that must be elevated and empowered. And those are the people the people who are on their side, and that's democracy. Because finally, the unfair power dynamics exercised by the people being suppressed will be suppressed, and the actual people who count as people can actually have a democracy without them. See how it works. Now, just as an aside, this is Gnostic. If you understand the Marxist turn into Gnosticism, I'm going to keep hitting these asides because you must understand it this way. The bourgeois classes are the demiurge. They're the group that has this power to construct the lives of everybody else. They do so by creating social constructions called ideologies, or actually social constructions that are mediated through their ideology, which is a mythology for why they should be in charge and you shouldn't. Things like merit, competence, you know, things like that. And um, those people have to be taken out of power because in Gnosticism, the constructor of your reality that's imprisoning you in your reality is an evil demon. And so they have to be removed from power so that people, actual people, can be set free of their influence. And when they're set free of their influence, then we're actually liberated, emancipated, or free people. That's the same logic, identical logic. So yet again, when you understand that Marx placed demiurgic power, which is carceral power, I put that on Twitter and somebody said, you use one word I don't know to describe another word I don't know. Carceral means incarcerate, means prison, means power to put, lock up and punish. To actually more explicitly to refute John Locke's statement of what it means to be human, that we have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and property. That's what it boils down to. And he says we're going to have a dictatorship for this. What is this dictatorship for? Mao rhetorically asks. Its first function is internal, namely to suppress the reactionary classes and elements and those exploiters who resist the socialist revolution. Do you feel that, deplorables? Do you feel that, MAGA? Do you feel that, ultra-MAGA? If you know anybody who went to J6 and got any shit for it, do you feel that? To if you got censored on social media, if you got kicked off of social media, if you're locked out of your account regularly, do you feel that? 
Its first function is to suppress the reactionary classes and elements and those exploiters who resist the socialist revolution, to suppress those who try to wreck our socialist construction, or in other words, to resolve the contradictions between ourselves and the internal enemy. For instance, to arrest, try, and sentence certain counter-revolutionaries and, and to, like the ones that showed up at the Capitol, and to deprive landlords and bureaucrat capitalists of their right to vote and their freedom of speech for a certain period of time. All this comes within the scope of our dictatorship. That's its purpose. That's its purpose. So when I say we're going through an American Maoist-style cultural revolution, that's its goal. And that's things they are actually doing to try to figure out how to lock up and silence people to remove the right to vote from the people who don't support the revolution. Doesn't this sound familiar? They're not disenfranchising you directly, but most well, sort of, but also indirectly. Doesn't this make sense of your experience? This is a cultural revolution. This is a takeover of the Maoist style. You must understand what's happening in this country. He goes on, to maintain public order and safeguard the interests of the people, we will send in the social workers. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what he says. He says, to maintain public order and safeguard the interests of the people, it is necessary to exercise dictatorship as well over thieves, swindlers, murderers, arsonists, criminal gangs, and other scoundrels who seriously disrupt the public order. The second function of this dictator... Now, realize, this is after the revolution, right? All of those things were encouraged, and when Mao comes back and gets power, those were all encouraged again. But it wasn't evil when his Antifa, I mean Red Guard, did it, right? It wasn't actually illegal then. It was what we were supposed to do. The second function of this dictatorship is to protect our country from subversion and possible aggression by external enemies. In such contingencies, it is the task of this dictatorship to resolve the contradiction between ourselves and the external enemy. The aim of this dictatorship is to protect all of our people, remember who the people are, so that they can devote themselves to peaceful labor and make China a socialist country with modern industry, modern agriculture, and modern science and culture. See, why do we have to protect our people so they can make China a socialist country? Who is to exercise this dictatorship? Naturally, the working class and the entire people under its leadership. Thing is, see, there's a lot of stakeholders in the country, and that's really messy. So we're going to have to have certain stakeholder representatives, but they're representing the stakeholders, which is everybody. That's the people. The stakeholders are the people, right? And we're going to have representatives like Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab decide who and what and John Kerry and the CDC and Anthony Fauci are stake, they're stakeholder representatives that are speaking on behalf of the whole working class and the entire people under its leadership. See, because he says dictatorship does not apply within the ranks of the people. The people cannot exercise dictatorship over themselves, nor must one section of the people oppress another. So it's some outside group that's going to have to do that, namely the party, of course. Lawbreakers among the people will be punished according to the law, but this is, this is different in principle from the exercise of dictatorship to suppress enemies of the people. See, they're just trying to keep you safe. The, they, they are just trying to look out for your interests as the people, and they're trying to keep you safe. That's why they have to do a dictatorship. There's an emergency. There's a crisis. They need emergency powers. They need to take action, right? Just like here just like now. 
What applies among the people is democratic centralism. Oh, there we go. Democratic centralism. So democracy and centralism have already been fused synthetically right there. Our constitution lays it down. He says that citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of speech, the press, assembly, association, procession, demonstration, religious belief, and so on. Our constitution also provides that organs of the state must practice democratic centralism that they must rely on the masses, and that their personnel must serve the people. Remember again what the people means. The people means only the people who are supporting socialism. Let me just reread that part. Our constitution also provides that the organs of the state must practice democratic centralism, which is the people's dictatorship, that they must rely on the masses, and that their personnel must serve the people who support socialism. Our socialist democracy is the broadest kind of democracy, such as is not to be found in any bourgeois state, just like Lenin said in uh, State and Revolution in 19, 19, uh, 17, 18, something like that. Our dictatorship is the people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class and based on the worker-peasant alliance. That is to say, democracy operates within the ranks of the people, while the working class, uniting with all others enjoying civil rights, in the first place within the peasantry enforces the dictatorship, oh sorry, and in the first place with the peasantry enforces dictatorship over the reactionary classes and elements and all those who resist socialist transformation and oppose socialist construction. So if you oppose equity and inclusion and sustainability, we have to enforce a dictatorship over you because this is really in your best interest. It's actually um, necessary for your best interest because you're the people. But we're working in representation of you, but you only count as you if you support those values. Okay. By civil rights, we mean politically the rights of freedom and democracy. But they just said that democracy means democratic centralism. So he goes on to say, but this freedom is freedom with leadership. Oh, and this democracy is democracy under centralized guidance, not anarchy. Oh, stakeholders are going to determine. A Soviet of stakeholders, a council of stakeholders is going to determine what the people really need. The, the, the people are the stakeholders for real, but we're the stakeholders that meet and make the decisions in our council. Because anarchy, he says, does not accord with the interests or wishes of the people. Certain people in our country were delighted by the Hungarian incident. Now, I honestly only know very little about this, but we do know that there were various communist revolutions in Hungary, and there was one in the 50s. So I assume that this is um, something that happened, and I did not look up the history, but I'm just going to kind of plow through this. They He brings it up a bunch of times, and I should have looked up the history, but there's too many things to know. They hoped that something similar would happen in China, that thousands upon thousands of people would take to the streets to demonstrate against the people's government. That's right. They threw off the communists repeatedly in Hungary. And here, certain people in our country were delighted by that fact that that happened. Their hopes ran counter to the interests of the masses and therefore could not possibly win their support. You only count as part of the masses if you are one of the people that they speak on behalf of or if you are a representative of the people. Deceived by domestic and foreign counter-revolutionaries, a section of the people in Hungary made the mistake of resorting to violence against the people's government. They threw off their communist dictators, and that was a mistake, clearly, because foreign influences tricked them into it, with the result that both the state and the people suffered. The damage done to the country's economy in a few weeks of rioting will take a long time to repair. Remember this guy in 1966 comes back and destroys his country with a cultural revolution. 
utterly wrecks it. Millions die, destroyed economy. Remember also that he's saying this on the eve of the greatest economic catastrophe possibly in human history that he's about to launch, the leap forward, or the great leap, I should say, great leap forward. Good to just remind you that this is the sales pitch. Oh, it was really bad. They, there were riots. It's going to take a long time. The economy got messed up. And he says, but in our country, there were some who wavered on the question of the Hungarian incident because they were ignorant of the real state of affairs in the world. In other words, a communist interpretation of them. They think that there is, top, uh, it says top, but I assume too little freedom under our people's democracy, and that there is a more, and that there is more freedom under Western parliamentary democracy. They assume correctly. They ask for a two-party system, as in the West, with one party in office and the other in opposition. But this so-called two-party system is nothing but a device for maintaining the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Oh, see, because there's always a dictatorship. The government's always a dictatorship, according to this. Marxist line of thought. You either have a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, like Lenin said, where the, demo, the demiurgic bourgeois classes get to pull all the levers and control everything and the people are oppressed, or you can have the socialist, democratic, centralist dictatorship, the dictatorship of the proletariat or of the people, which is going to repress those elements so the people can actually be free, right? That's their kind of very Manichaean world that they're laying out here. And what he says is, you might want a two-party system. You might want parliamentary democracy. You might have thought that was a good idea. But in fact, that's actually just how the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie maintains itself. He says it can never guarantee freedoms to the working people, right? Because the bourgeoisie has like a demiurge, in other words, a prison builder and warden, that imprisons the working people for his own benefit. As a matter of fact, freedom and democracy exist not in the abstract, but only in the concrete, he says. In a society where class struggle exists, if there is freedom for the exploiting classes to exploit the working people, then there is no freedom for the working people not to be exploited. Oh, so if people can do business, and that business can be treated as exploitation or looked at as exploitation, then the working people have no freedom at all because they're just going to be exploited. That's his, his argument. So that's why it's a dictatorship. If there is democracy for the bourgeoisie, then he says there is no democracy for the proletariat and other working people. The legal existence of the communist party is tolerated in some capitalist countries, but only to the extent that it does not endanger the fundamental interests of the bourgeoisie. It is not tolerated beyond that. So he's saying that, you know, countries like the United States allow a communist party to exist, but it's only allowed to be very controlled opposition. It's not allowed to get powerful enough to threaten the existing social order and the, and because we don't want communism. Uh, and so when they do their stuff, they flip that over and they create controlled opposition to their socialist agenda, right? The iron law of woke projection never misses. Those who demand freedom and democracy in the abstract regard democracy as an end and not as a means. Doesn't this, by the way, sound exactly like Herbert Marcuse, for those of you who have bothered to read Repressive Tolerance? Because it's the same ideas. Democracy as such sometimes seems to be an end, but it is in fact only a means. Marxism teaches us that democracy is part of the superstructure and belongs to the realm of politics. That is to say, in the last analysis, it serves the economic base. The same is true of freedom. Both democracy and freedom are relative, not absolute, and they come into being and develop in specific historical conditions. 
within the ranks of the people. Democracy is correlative with centralism. Okay, get, hold on. Within the ranks of the people means among people who accept the socialist order and support it and want it, democracy is correlative. In other words, democracy aligns with centralism. So now the dialectical synthesis of demo democracy and centralism is happening. Democracy is correlative with centralism and freedom with discipline. They are the two opposites of a single entity, just like I told you before, contradictory as well as united under the hermetic principle of polarity. They are the two opposites of a single entity, contradictory as well as united, and we should not one-sidedly emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. In other words, you can't have democracy without central power, without a dictatorship, and you can't have freedom without discipline. Hello, Rousseau. Hello, French Revolution. Hello, where did Mao get educated? Within the ranks of the people, we cannot do without freedom, nor can we do without discipline. I be believe me that discipline will be imposed from the outside and in insidious ways to make sure that you are self-disciplining yourself as well. We cannot do without democracy, nor can we do without centralism. This unity of democracy and centralism, of freedom and discipline, constitutes our democratic centralism. Do you hear they make up these words that sound interesting and good, but they just kind of mystify you like democratic centralism? But what he actually means is a dictatorship where we're going to pretend that the people that we speak on behalf of, the people who are only the people who agree with us because they have the gnosis of socialism or equity or inclusion or critical race theory or queer theory and nobody else really understands things. Those people are the only ones who count. So it's democratic for them, except that because, you know, they're busy and doing their things like work, we'll have to decide for them. And so it's actually a dictatorship. And what is a dictatorship for? Well, it's to punish and suppress your enemies so that you can keep having this life. And which is the life you want because you only count if you're the people who support this program. Do you, do you see the circularity here? This is how it works. This unity of democracy and centralism of freedom and discipline constitutes our democratic centralism. Under this system, the people enjoy broad democracy and freedom, but at the same time, they have to keep within the bounds of socialist discipline. All this is well understood by the masses. See, you can be as free as you want, but you have to be sustainable. You can travel, do, move, eat, whatever you want, as long as it's all sustainable. So yeah, you might want to eat ribeye, but that's not sustainable. So you're going to eat bugs. You might want to go visit your family, but that's a long car ride or a flight and those aren't sustainable. So why don't you just zoom? See, under this system, the people enjoy broad democracy and freedom. But at the same time, they have to keep within the bounds of socialist discipline. You could have whatever you want, go earn all you want, but we have to keep equity in mind. You can get whatever job you want, but we have to be equitable and inclusive in our hiring. Under this system, the people enjoy broad democracy and freedom, but at the same time, they have to keep within the bounds of socialist discipline. All this is well understood by the masses. In advocating freedom with leadership and democracy under centralized guidance, we in no way mean that coercive measures should be taken to settle ideological questions or questions involving the distinction between right and wrong among the people. All attempts to use administrative orders or coercive measures to settle ideological questions or questions of right and wrong are not only ineffective, but harmful. Now listen, they're not going to force you. This is where I keep saying that the tyranny of the future following Mao is opt-in. 
He's lying. Of course, he also, again, like I said, famously said, power flows from the barrel of a gun. But that's beside the point. They're not going to force you. They're just going to make life intolerable for you unless you step in. That's not technically coercion in some weird sense. They're not directly coercing you. They're indirectly coercing you, right? We cannot abolish religion, he says, by administrative order or force people not to believe in it. We cannot compel people to give up idealism any more than we can force them to embrace Marxism. The only way to settle questions of an ideological nature or controversial issues among the people is by the democratic method. All right, spoiler time. What do you think the democratic method is? Jeopardy music. What do you think it's going to be? Did you guess struggle sessions? The only way to settle questions of an ideological nature or controversial issues among the people is by the democratic method, the method of discussion, criticism, persuasion, and education. Criticism. Pipan dojeng. Critical struggle. And not by the method of coercion or repression. See, you just have to morally and intellectually and psychologically browbeat people who aren't on the program. Because they have to be socialists or they don't have the gnosis, so they're not, they're not with it. They don't get it. To be able to carry on their production and studies effectively and lead their lives in peace and order, the people want their government and those in charge of production and cultural and educational organizations to issue appropriate administrative regulations of an obligatory nature. It is common sense that without them, the maintenance of public order would be impossible. Administrative regulations and the method of persuasion and education complement each other in resolving contradictions among the people. See, there's just going to be lots of regulations that make your life suck, you know, in a modern day, like a social credit system, if you don't participate. And then we'll use discussion, criticism, persuasion, and education, brainwashing, to get you to go along with it. Social stigma, shaming, locking you out of society, etc. Because the people want appropriate administrative regulations of an obligatory nature. In fact, administrative regulations for the maintenance of public order must be accompanied by persuasion and education, for in many cases, regulations alone won't work. See, so they're going to give you a social credit system, or they're going to give you a uh, system that you can't participate in fully unless you have the right attitudes, and then they're going to persuade you and educate you to have the right attitudes. Just like in the prisons where they teach you to see from the people's standpoint, the Ren Miling, uh, what was it? Ren, Ren Min Li Chang. Uh, my Mandarin is not good. As you can tell, it's actually probably better than my German. Um, so it's not going to be regulations alone, but we're going to have obligatory regulations like a social credit system in the modern day, sustainable quotas, you know, carbon footprint tracking, you know, movement tracking, passports educational competencies and so on. Those are regulations, but we're going to also have to persuade and educate people into believing in that system. That's the program here. And it won't be coercive exactly. You just are going to live a shitty life unless you get on board, unless you're really bad. And then they're going to put you in a prison and actually reeducate you. Or in case it's, they might just do that because it's useful to do that to you. If you're kind of on the edge, they can make an example of you. Um, which is what they did in practice for the seven years leading up to this speech, as Robert Lifton made very clear. This democratic method of resolving contradictions among the people, democratic method, was epitomized in 1942 in the formula, quote, unity, criticism, unity. This is one of the nastiest paragraphs, I swear, in this essay, or there's a set of paragraphs, it's a few paragraphs, to elaborate 
That means starting for the desire for unity. Don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to be one of us? Don't you want things to be easier? Don't you want things to go well? That means starting from the desire for unity, resolving contradictions through criticism or struggle. Remember, this is the democratic method of solving contradictions, right? The democratic method of resolving contradictions among the people is epitomized in the formula unity criticism unity, which means starting from the desire for unity, resolving contradictions through criticism or struggle, and arriving at a new unity on a new basis. There's your DEI program at work. There's SEL at school. There's the bullying, the harassment, the haranguing on social media, everything that you've experienced for the last five years, not just George Floyd three years, two and a half years, the last five years at least, has been this program. We are going through an American cultural revolution that is Maoist in nature, and you must understand this. If we don't understand it, we cannot adequately resist it. In our experience, he says, this is the correct method of resolving contradictions among the people. In 1942, we used it to resolve contradictions inside the Communist Party, namely the contradictions between the dogmatists and the great majority of the membership, and between dogmatism and Marxism. The, quote, left dogmatists had resorted to the method of, quote, ruthless struggle and ruthless, or sorry, and merciless blows in inter-party struggle. It was the wrong method. So the woke extremists are useful for various purposes, but they're actually just a tool for these people. And they will be punished for it later. But see, there are different times and different parts. We're in the pre-revolutionary or kind of revolutionary stage right now, so certain methods are needed. But when we start building out equity and socialism, the woke are about to become the left dogmatists. And that's the wrong method. It's going to be bad for them. It's not going to be good for the woke. It's not going to be good for them if this continues. In criticizing, quote, left dogmatism, we did not use this old method, but adopted a new one. That is one of starting from the desire for unity. Here's the the alchemical formula, the way that it gets expressed by left and right Hegelians all the time. There's a big change coming. There's nothing you can do about it. If you want to help, if you want to have a desire for unity, things will be pretty good for you. If you don't, things are going to be very bad for you. Make your choice. That's the alchemical formula. That's been being told to CEOs. That's been being told to religious leaders. That's been being told to politicians for about a decade now by the people pushing this. I mean the World Economic Forum. I mean the CCP. I mean their associates. I mean the United Nations. There's a big change coming. There's nothing you can do about it. Now there are reactionary elements saying the same thing. There's a big change coming. We're going to have a cultural return or renewal. There's nothing you can do about it. If you go along with us, it'll be good for you. If you don't go along with us, it'll be bad for you. I hate to say it, but even the, the tactics currently of the school choice movement are very much like this. You will get boxed out of the conversation if you oppose it in many cases. But I'm thinking more of the reaction movements, neo-reaction, um, post-liberal reaction, Christian nationalist right? They're using the same tactic. I'm not saying that they're the same thing. I'm saying they're using the same tactic, which should tell you something about how they operate and what they're really standing for. They're part of the overall dialectic, in other words. Um, But what it says here, sorry, within a few years, 
By the time the Communist Chinese, Party, Chinese Communist Party held its seventh National Congress in 1945, unity was achieved throughout the party as anticipated, and consequently the People's Revolution triumphed. Here, the essential thing is to start from the desire for unity. For without this desire for unity, the struggle once begun is certain to throw things into confusion and get out of hand. That's what Bill Maher actually said. Don't you realize that these things spin out of control? But that start, he, Mao says if we have the unity, if you say that you're only going to be able to, it's only going to work if we're all on the same page, well, that might stop that. Now, again, I remind you, he's doing this speech on the literal eve of the launch of the leap, Great Leap Forward, which killed 55 million people. It was that things going into confusion and getting out of hand. He says, wouldn't this be the same as, quote, ruthless struggle and merciless blows? And what party unity would there be left? Well, after he did the great leap forward, starting the next year after this, they threw him out of power and he had to come back in a revenge cycle. What party unity was left? It was precisely this experience that led us to the formula, unity, criticism, unity. So again, I remind you, it's a sales pitch he's giving you here. Or in other words, quote, learn from past mistakes to avoid future ones and cure the sickness to save the patient. Because they're doctors, right? They're making diagnosis, like, you know, gnosis, across, dia, across, gnosis. So they're the ones who can learn from past mistakes to avoid future ones and cure the sickness to save the patient. We extended this method beyond our party. We applied it with great success in the anti-Japanese base areas in dealing with the relations between the leadership and the masses, between the army and the people, between the officers and men, between the different units of the army, and between the different groups of cadres. The use of this method can be traced back to still earlier times in our party's history. Ever since 1927, when we built our revolutionary armed forces and base areas in the South, this method had been used to deal with the relations between the party and the masses, between the army and the people, between the officers and men, and with other relations among the people. Unfortunately, I don't have the Chinese historical chops to give you some color to that black and white picture he just painted. The only difference was that during the anti-Japanese war, we employed this method much more consciously. And since the liberation of the whole country, we have employed the same method of unity, criticism, unity in our relations with the democratic parties and with industrial and commercial circles. Our task is now to continue to extend and make still better use of this method throughout the ranks of the people. We want all our factories, cooperatives, shops, schools, offices, and people's organizations in a word, all of our 600 million people, to use it in resolving contradictions among themselves. Uh-huh. So there's DEI training in the workplace, in the military, in the schools, in everything. Our task is now to continue to extend the unity criticism, unity formula throughout the ranks of the people. We want all our factories, cooperatives, shops, schools, offices, people's organizations, in a word, all our 600 million people to use it in resolving contradictions among themselves. In ordinary circumstances, contradictions among the people are not antagonistic, but if they are not handled properly, or if we relax our vigilance and lower our guard, antagonism may arise. In a socialist country, a development of this kind is usually only a localized and temporary phenomenon. wonder why that is. The reason is that the system of exploitation of man by man has been abolished. Right. Or the democratic socialist 
centralism steps in and squashes it because that's literally what their dictatorship is for. He just told us that, right? The reason is that the system of exploitation of man by man has been abolished and the interests of the people are fundamentally identical. The antagonistic actions which took, which took place on a fairly wide scale during the Hungarian incident were the result of the operations of both domestic and foreign counter-revolutionary elements. This was a this was a particular as well as a temporary phenomenon. It was a case of the reactionaries inside a socialist country in league with the imperialists, attempting to achieve their conspiratorial aims by taking advantage of contradictions among the people to foment dissension and stir up disorder. The lesson of the Hungarian incident merits attention. Now, what's this about Hungarian thing? James doesn't know the history, can't really talk about it. What does that have to do with the Maoist revolution here in America we're going through right now, this um, American Cultural Revolution or the Maoist Cultural Revolution with American characteristics? Remember how Russia did all those things? <laughs> the Russian dossier, Russian interference, Russia, Russia, Russia. You see, because the Hungarian incident was a result of the operation of both domestic and foreign counter-revolutionary elements that was disrupting the regime's operation. This was a particular as well as a temporary phenomenon. It was a case of reactionaries inside of a socialist country, like MAGA, in league with the imperialists, attempting, just the neocons, attempting to achieve their conspiratorial aims by taking advantage of contradictions among the people, MAGA movement, but they also used those outsiders, domestic, sorry, foreign counter-revolutionary elements, Russia, 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 the Russia hoax. Oh, there it is. That's how Mao was explaining why there was a counter-revolution that succeeded in Hungary. And so they're using the same scapegoat, same blame game that Mao used now in the United States. Many people seem to think that the use of the democratic method to resolve... By the way, that's how they took away a lot of your voting, right? We had to do all this stuff with voting because of Russia, Russia, Russia. That's how they did all this stuff with Trump. Russia, Russia, Russia. Many people seem to think that the use of the democratic method to resolve contradictions among the people is something new. Actually, it is not. Marxists have always held that the cause of the proletariat must depend on the masses and the uh, masses of the people. Not all the masses, just the masses of the people. Remember, the ones who support socialism. And that communists must use the democratic method of persuasion and education. Remember, that's criticism and struggle. When working among the laboring people and must on no account resort to commandism or coercion. No, they don't command you to believe things. They don't coerce you to believe things. They make your life a living hell until you agree. That's it. Criticism and struggle. Criticism and struggle. With social criticism, lock you out. The Chinese Communist Party faithfully adheres to this Marxist-Leninist principle. It has been our consistent view that under the People's Democratic Dictatorship, two different uh, methods, one dictatorial and the other democratic, remember criticism and struggle, should be used to resolve the two types of contradictions which differ in nature. Those between ourselves and the enemy, people who support socialism and people who don't, they get the dictatorship, and among, those among the people. So those who are already socialists get criticism and struggle. Do you understand? This idea has been explained again and again in many party documents and in speeches by many leading comrades of our party. In my article on the People's Democratic Dictatorship written in 1949, I said, quote, the combination of these two aspects, democracy for the people and dictatorship over the reactionaries, is the People's Democratic Dictatorship. Could he be more clear? Isn't that what we're trying to uh, soft softball into the West right now? 
Isn't that what the social media contouring is about? Isn't that what the DOJ laboring, labeling parents domestic terrorists is about? This combination of these two aspects, democracy, remember that's criticism and struggle for the people, and dictatorship, that's suppression over the reactionaries, is the people's democratic dictatorship. That's Mao's statement of what a democratic dictatorship is. In other words, democratic centralism, which he says is a necessity for them. There is no such thing. There is no real democracy without centralism, just like there's no freedom without socialist discipline. He said, I also pointed out that in order to settle problems within the ranks of the people, quote, the method we employ is democratic, the method of persuasion, not of compulsion. Again, criticism and struggle. Go listen to the Struggle Session podcast. See what you get out of that. That's what he means by democratic methods. Again, in addressing the second session of the first National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference in June uh, 2, I said, I don't know what exactly is meant with the 2 there, but we'll leave it there. Um, quote, the people's democratic dictatorship uses two methods. Toward the enemy, it uses the method of dictatorship. That is, for as long a period of time as is necessary, it does not permit them to take part in political activity and compels them to obey the law of the people's government to engage in labor and through such labor to be transformed into new men. Toward the people, on the contrary, it uses the method of democracy and not of compulsion. That is, it must necessarily let them take part in political activity and does not compel them to do this or that, but uses the method of democracy to educate and persuade. Such education is self-education for the people, and its basic method is criticism and self-criticism. End quote. Okay, now pause. That was horrifying. Okay, no question. First, he says, if you agree with us, in other words, if you're a Gnostic, you get different treatment. Well, if you've joined the Gnostic cult of socialism or communism or whatever you want to call it, you get different treatment. You are going to have education through criticism and self-criticism. You are going to be struggled into deeper and deeper cult commitment. However, if you haven't, it's a two-tiered system. You do not have nose. You have no mind. You are not a Gnostic. You do not count as a person. And we are going to put iron dictatorship on you. You will not be permitted to take part in political activity. You will be compelled to obey the law of the socialist government, even if you don't have any representation within it. You will be forced to engage in labor and through your labor to, labor to be transformed into a new man. Or as um, Hitler mocked in German, Arbeit mocked Frei. Your work will set you free. And if it doesn't set you free of your bourgeois mentality, it will set you free of your mortal coil. Such education... That's the two-tiered system. The Gnostics get one treatment, which is more cult deepening, more cult indoctrination, and the people who are not yet Gnostics get brutal dictatorship by the cult. To be forced to either join the cult through their conditions, to opt into the cult, at which point they can join the criticism and self-criticism struggle session circuit because they've adopted the Gnosis, they've entered the outer school of the Gnostic cult, or they can... Um, they can be uh, brutally punished and suppressed. And let me tangent there for a second, this outer school thing. I just did the Gnosticism in the West podcast recently, um, and a lot of people are reaching out to me and they see it, it's, which is great, but they're confused because a lot of people are joining this cult 
they're woke or Marxist or whatever, and they don't know they're in a cult. So how can they be in a cult? They don't know what it's all about. They don't realize they're in a cult. They think that they're fighting for racial liberation or sexual liberation or, or trans or whatever, gender liberation, whatever they're looking for, right? They have no idea that they're in a Gnostic cult. They've never heard of Gnostics. Cults always work this way. They always have, think of it like, you know, layers, like an onion. They always have at least three that can get more, you know, graded. Think about like the Freemasons. They have 33 levels at different levels. The top two of those are something like that, 32 and 33. That's the people who really, really, really know the secrets, right? What's really, really, really about what is really going on. That's what you would call the inner circle. Having studied a Chinese martial art, which has a kind of a pedagogical method of this sort, that there are the people who get to really know, and then there are the people who get to know kind of better, and then there's the people who show up and kind of copy it, uh, and they literally call it by this, is that there's the, the disciples, that's the inner circle, then there's an inner school, Nejia in Chinese for when you're in the inner school of a, of a martial arts club and you get to actually know how the martial art works. Usually the distinction there is you get to feel it. You don't get to see the moves, you get to feel them. So you get to feel where the forces are, etc. So you have the, you have the initiates or the disciples or sorry, not initiates. Everybody in here is an initiate, but then you have the inner circle and that's the disciples. They are in on all of it. That's your top two, 32 and 33 levels Freemasons. If you're in the Mason club below that, I don't know what the numbers work out to in masonry. Uh, so I can't do it there. You have the inner school, the Nejia in Chinese. And then you have the, the, if I remember my Chinese, the Waijia, I think it's Wa, maybe it's Wei outer school. So you have an outer school and inner school and then a discipleship inner circle. Most of the people when they become socialists, the reason that they have to go through the criticism, they're not in the party, right? They become socialists, they get different treatment. Now they go into the criticism, democratic method Mao's describing. That's outer school. So the criticism, self-criticism, struggle mechanism, study mechanism is to bring them from outer school. They've accepted the gnosis of socialism. They want unity. They want to get better. They want to become socialists. They want to change. That's outer school. They want to learn the martial art. Inner school, they get to actually, that's when you join the party. And then when you're at party leadership, that's the inner circle. Same things going on with, with all of the woke cult. There are some people who understand what it really is. They're communists or maybe Nazis or this kind of communo-Nazi thing we've got going on at the World Economic Forum. That's the inner circle. Then there are the people who really know the theory and they're articulating it. That's mostly the scholars and some of the top activists, many of the top activists. And then you have just a bunch of morons who have bought into equity, inclusion, etc. Gender is a social construct, blah, blah, blah. I can choose my gender, that kind of stuff. Systemic racism is real. We don't have the slightest idea they've joined a cult, but they're in the cult. That's the outer school. Inner circle, inner school, outer school. Very important to understand. What Mao is saying is, your life is going to be hell. Here, there's those three tiers. Plato might call them, I don't know, gold, silver, and iron, or gold, silver, and bronze, like we use in the Olympics. The gold really know what's going on. The silver kind of know what's going on. And then the, the, the bronze know much less, but they're part of the system. They keep it going. They're, the, they're where the real work gets done on behalf of the silver people who are the guard and the gold people who are going to make it. Who, who actually direct everything, the so-called philosopher kings, right? So if you're outside of that, what Mao is saying, if you're in the hoi polloi, as it would be in platonic language, brutal dictatorship to either 
destroy you or transform you or make you want to join the cult. If you join the cult, you join in the outer school and you're going to enter the criticism and struggle session until you start to get it. In the prisons, as Lifton described, after you struggle and struggle and struggle, struggle, interrogate, struggle, interrogate, struggle, interrogate, abuse, 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 abuse. After about a year of that and you start to break and you say that you you prove to the judge that you truly want to transform, you get moved to a different prison and you begin swayshi, study. That's when you've moved from outer school to inner school. Now you're learning to be a communist. You're not just having your 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 morale, your morals, your your psychological state, your ability to understand the world destroyed through criticism to the democratic method and struggle. Now, while that continues, and you might at any time be thrown back into that, Lifton tells us, now you get to study, shueishi. You get to learn how to become a, a socialist, inner school. And then after the inner school, when you really get to learn, that's going to college. That's taking a gender studies class. That's having your lesson in school about the gender unicorn or whatever. Outer school to inner school, when you really become a constructivist, a critical constructivist, a Ferrarian, uh, conscientized person, inner school. And then there are this very small number of people who are pulling the strings who actually know what they're doing. And they're all, as Patrice Coulours told us, trained Marxists. Do you understand that now? And that's what Mao just described as his method. Okay. So he says, thus on many occasions, we've discussed the use of the democratic method for resolving contradictions among the people. Furthermore, we have in the main applied in our work and many cadres and, and, uh, and many other people are familiar with it in practice. Why then do some people now feel that it is a new issue? Because in the past, a struggle between ourselves and the enemy, both internal and external, was most acute. And contradictions among the people, therefore, did not attract as much attention as they do today. I'm telling you, after they get more power, it's going to be bad for the woke. Quite a few people fail to make a clear distinction between these two different types of contradictions, those between ourselves and the enemy and those among the people, and are prone to confuse the two. It must be admitted that it is sometimes quite easy to do. We have had instances of such confusion in our work in the past. In the course of cleaning out counter-revolutionaries, hear that phrase, cleaning out counter-revolutionaries, you know, sweeping away the demons, I think was the thing, the ch actual Chinese. Good people were sometimes mistaken for bad, and such things still happen today. We are able to keep mistakes within bounds because it has been our policy to draw a sharp line between ourselves and the enemy and to rectify mistakes whenever discovered. Marxist philosophy holds that the law of unity of opposites is the fundamental law of the universe. Okay, that's a religion gang, right? And the unity, the law of the unity of opposites is the hermetic principle of polarity. The hermetic principle of polarity is that opposites are the same in kind and different in degree. They, they're, they're not different. They're not opposite. The, what I was talking about in the Gnosticism in the West podcast is the destruction or dissolution of distinction, the obliteration of distinction. And cynical theories, when we talk about queer theory and postmodernism, we talked about the blurring of boundaries. That's what this is. Marxist philosophy holds that the law of unity of opposites is the fundamental law of the universe. In the Gnostic and Hermetic belief, or Hermetic in this case, it's that all distinction is an illusion, and we get back to tr we get back to God. Literally, we get back to perfect unity by obliterating all appearances of distinctions by seeing everything as part of the same undifferentiated whole, removing all distinctions. So, if you think differently than I do, that's a distinction. We all have to think the same. Isn't that something? This is the hermetic principle of polarity uh, 
re-articulated. This is a hermetic Gnostic religion. He says this law operates universally, whether in the natural world, in human society, or in man's thinking. Between the opposites and contradiction, there is at once unity and struggle. Okay, so struggle and criticism, right? So there's a, a desire for unity. That's where you want to see the opposites as the same. That's where you are in Hegel's ideas that you have examined the concept in the abstract until its, its opposite emerged from within it and you see it clearly. And then you enter into the negative, which is the criticism and struggle, to where you're going to break down and dissolve those differences. And then we return to unity, which is the perfect unity of the community, of the communism of the uh, return to God in the Hermetic faith. Um, and again, this is the exact same thing that Paulo Freire lays out as his decodification method, just to remind you, which is what is happening in our schools and why I, link, I liken it to the Maoist brainwashing program because we're dealing with the same damn thing, which is what does he say? Is that we're going to codify uh, our existential situation, we're going to present it in the abstract, and we're going to um, we're going to critique it, we're going to we're actually going to problematize it, uh, we're going to have to decodify it through the process of learning to read its political content, then problematizing it, and then making it personal or uh, concretizing it. And as it fades into the concrete, we then understand our real situation. And you have abstract, negative, concrete, recreated, which is unity, criticism, unity, uh, desire for unity, I should say, struggle and criticism returning to unity. And this law operates universally, whether in the natural world, in human society, or in man's thinking. Between the opposites and contradiction, there is at once unity and struggle. And it is that, the, sorry, it is this that impels things to move and change. That's straight hermeticism, guys. There's no, no denying it. Contradictions exist everywhere, but their nature differs in accordance with the different nature of different things. In any given thing, the unity of opposites is conditional, temporary, and transitory, hence relative, whereas the struggle of opposites is absolute. Lenin gave a very clear exposition of this law. It has come to be understood by a growing number of people in our country, but for many people it is one thing to accept this law and quite another to apply it in examining and dealing with problems. Many dare not openly admit that contradictions still exist among the people of our country, while it is precisely these contradictions that are pushing our society forward because it's a clash of opposites that propels the society. And meanwhile, in Hermeticism, it is the clash and resolution of opposites that dissolves the fact that the opposites were illusions in the first place and there's no distinction. That's progress. That's going forward. Progress doesn't mean making things better. It means dissolving for progressives. Progressivism does not mean making things better. It means dissolving distinctions. Many do not admit that contradictions still exist in socialist society with the result that they become irresolute and passive when confronted with social contradictions. They do not understand that socialist society grows more united and consolidated through the ceaseless process of correctly handling and resolving contradictions. For this reason, we need to explain things to our people and to our cadres in the first place in order to help them understand the contradiction in socialist society and learn to use correct methods for handling them. Remember that Lifton points out that they use the word helping for struggle in the Chinese prisons. Contradictions in socialist society, he says, are fundamentally different from those in the old society, such as capitalist society. In capitalist society, contradictions find expression in acute antagonisms and conflicts. 
and sharp class struggle. They cannot be resolved by the capitalist system itself and can only be resolved by socialist revolution. The case is quite different with contradictions in socialist society, on the contrary. They are not antagonistic and can be ceaselessly resolved by the socialist system itself. He says in socialist society, the basic contradictions are still those between the relations of production and the productive forces, and between the superstructure and the economic base. However, they are fundamentally different in character and have different features from the contradictions between the relations of production and the productive forces and between the superstructure and the economic base in the old societies. The present social system of our country is far superior to that of the old days. Listen to this logic. If it were not so, the old system would not have been overthrown, and the new system could not have been established. See, socialism won, so it must be better. History is won by, written uh, by, the, by the victors. In saying the socialist relations of production correspond better to the character of productive forces than did the old relations of production, here comes the setup for the, the um, Great Leap Forward and his terrible, terrible logic. Under the rule of imperialism, feudalism and bureaucratic capitalism. Oh, I skipped a part. Sorry. Um, and saying that socialist relations of production correspond better to the character of the productive forces than did the old relations of production, we mean that they allow the productive forces to develop at a speed unattainable in the old society. Remember like in that other thing that I did where Klaus Schwab, we listened to Klaus Schwab say that state capitalism has certain advantages that it can mobilize resources very quickly. That's what he's talking about. So that production can expand steadily and increasingly meet the constantly growing needs of the people. Under the rule of imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism, the productive forces of the old China grew very slowly. For more than 50 years before liberation, China produced only a few tens of thousands of tons of steel a year. Listen to this shit. Not counting the output of the northeastern provinces. So if you take out the parts that we're making most of it, we only made a few ten thousands of tons. If these provinces are included, the annual steel output, uh, the peak annual steel output only amounted to a little over 900,000 tons. Okay, a few tens of thousands versus 900,000 if you include the part that he excluded. What a fraud. In 1949, the national steel output was a little over 100,000 tons. Yet now, a mere seven years after the liberation of our country, steel output already exceeds 4 million tons. So that is a 40-fold increase. In the old China, there was hardly any machine-building industry to say nothing of the automobile and aircraft industries. We now have all three. When the people overthrew the rule of imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism, many were not clear as to which way China should head, towards capitalism or towards socialism. Facts have now provided the answer. Have they? Only socialism can save China, he says. The socialist system has promoted the rapid development of the productive forces of our society, a fact even our enemies abroad have had to acknowledge, right? And your friends abroad, like Klaus Schwab, where he says, you know, state capitalism provides certain advantages, the rapid mobilization of resources to directed ends. Yeah, because it's a fucking totalitarian state, which nobody wants to live in. He goes on, he says, but our socialist system has only just been set up. It is not yet fully established or even fully consolidated. Okay, so he says, look how great things have been. We're going to make it better because we have barely begun. We're going to make it way more intense coming soon. Like I said, this is the presage. This is his introduction, the beginning of what's going to become the Great Leap Forward, which 
Here's the, you know, the, he comes back to it later in this, this speech. But in this case, this is him introducing what's going to be the justification for the Great Leap Forward. This is the sales pitch. And what did I tell you was a conclusion. 55 million dead people, a wrecked economy so bad that even him as a communist dictator got thrown out of office. So our social system has only just been set up. It is not yet fully established or even fully consolidated. Think of how much better it'll be when it is. In joint state, private, industrial, and commercial enterprises, capitalists still get a fixed rate of interest on their capital. That is to say, exploitation still exists. So as far as ownership is concerned, these enterprises are not yet completely socialist in nature. A number of our agricultural and handicraft producers' cooperatives are still semi-socialist. While even in the fully socialist cooperatives, certain specific problems of ownership remain to be solved. This is kind of a little inside baseball. Um, relations between production and exchange in accordance with socialist principles are being gradually established within and between all branches of our economy and more and more appropriate forms are being sought. The problem of the proper relation of accumulation to consumption within each of the two sectors of the socialist economy, the one where the means of production are owned by the whole people and the other where the means of production are owned by the collective, the, the state, and the problem of the proper relation of accumulation to consumption between the two sectors themselves are complicated problems for which it is not easy to work out a, perfect, a perfectly rational solution all at once. <laughs> to sum up, socialist relations of production have been established and are in correspondence with the growth of the productive forces. But these relations are still far from perfect. Again, remember, we're setting up for this great leap forward that's going to kill 55 million people or more. Or Maybe it's something like 15 to 55 million, I think is the estimate range. So maybe not more. And this imperfection stands in contradiction to the growth of the productive forces. Apart from the correspondence as well as the contradiction between the relations of production and growth of the productive forces, there is a correspondence as well as a contradiction between the superstructure and the economic base. This is kind of straight Marxist theory. Kind of want to skip it. Um, he does talk about the, again, again, the unity of opposites, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think that it actually matters. I'm going to skip the rest of this paragraph. Today, matters stand as follows. because It's kind of an inside baseball uh, paragraph. Today, matters stand as follows. The large-scale turbulent class struggles of the masses characteristic of uh, times of revolution have in the main come to an end. But the class struggle is by no means entirely over. While welcoming the new system, the masses are not yet quite accustomed to it. They need democratic persuasion. Government personnel are not sufficiently experienced and have to undertake further study, <laughs> see, an investigation of specific policies. In other words, time is needed for our social system to become established and consolidated, for the masses to become accustomed to the new system, and for government personnel to learn and acquire experience. It is therefore imperative for us at this juncture to raise the question of distinguishing contradictions among the people from those between ourselves and the enemy, as well as the question of the correct handling of contradictions among the people in order to unite the people of all nationalities in our country for the new battle, the battle against nature. Develop our economy and culture, help the whole nation to traverse this period of transition relatively smoothly, consolidate our new system, you know, make it sustainable, and build up our new state and build back better. And they're going to have to do some building back better after the great leap forward that he's about to throw down on them. That's section one. Most of the other ones are much shorter than that one. Two, 
the question of eliminating counter-revolutionaries. So this is going to touch on your experience for the last few years. The elimination of counter-revolutionaries is a struggle of opposites between, as between ourselves and the enemy. Among the people, there are some who see this question in a somewhat different light. Two kinds of people hold views differing from ours. Those with a right deviation in their thinking make no distinction between ourselves and the enemy and take the enemy for our own people. They regard as friends the very persons whom the masses regard as enemies. Those with a left deviation in their thinking magnify contradictions between ourselves and the enemy to such an extent that they take certain contradictions among the people for contradictions within the enemy and regard counter, as counter-revolutionaries persons who are actually not. Both of these views are wrong. Neither makes possible the correct handling of the problem of eliminating counter-revolutionaries or a correct assessment of this work. Eliminating counter-revolutionaries, by the way. To form a correct evaluation of our work in eliminating counter-revolutionaries, let us see what repercussions the Hungarian incident has had in China. After its occurrence, there was some unrest among a section of our intellectuals, but there were no squalls. Why? One reason, it must be said, was our success in eliminating counter-revolutionaries fairly thoroughly. Okay, so he says this thing happened in Hungary. They had a counter-revolution, and we had some disagreements about it here within China, within our intellectual class, but really there wasn't that much of a disagreement about it. Why not? Well, because we already got rid of the people who would disagree. See, of course, the consolidation of our state is not due primarily to the elimination of counter-revolutionaries. It is due primarily to the fact that we have a communist party and a liberation army, both tempered in decades of revolutionary struggle, and a working people likewise so tempered. Our party and our armed forces are rooted in the masses, have been tempered in the flames of a protracted revolution, and have the capacity to fight. See, the real reason that their state is getting consolidated isn't that they've gotten rid of all the people who might resist them. It's that they have a military that can fight. Our People's Republic, he says, was not built overnight, but developed step by step out of the revolutionary base areas. A number of democratic personages have also been tempered in the struggle in varying degrees, and they have gone through troubled times together with us. Some intellectuals were tempered in struggles against imperialism and reaction. Since liberation may have gone through a process of ideological remolding aimed at enabling them to distinguish clearly between ourselves and the enemy. In addition, the consolidation of our state is due to the fact that our economic measures are basically sound. <laughs> Remember that he's about to destroy the entire country and kill 50 million people with their basic economic measures. That the people's life is secure and steadily improving, that our policies toward the national bourgeoisie and other classes are correct, and so on. Communist sales pitch. Nevertheless, our success in eliminating counter-revolutionaries is undoubtedly an important reason for the consolidation of our state. For all these reasons, say so if you get rid of dissidents, for all these reasons, with few exceptions, our college students are patriotic and support socialism and did not give way to unrest during the Hungarian incident, even though many of them come from families of non-working people. So we ask ourselves in our own society now so often, why do the young people not rebel? Why are they not rebellious against all this crap? There you go. Rebellion has already been taught to them to be something that's very, very costly, especially socially. The same was true of the national bourgeoisie, he says, to say nothing of the basic masses, workers and peasants. After liberation, we rooted out a number of counter-revolutionaries. That would have been 49 and 50. This is where we're going to be going into the people who ended up in, Mao, uh, in Mao's prisons that Lifton wrote about. 
and they were in there in 50, what, I forgot what years he said, 51 through three, something like that. Some were sentenced to death for major crimes. This was absolutely necessary. It was the demand of the masses. See, the party, the stakeholders decided that they had to kill a lot of the counter-revolutionaries because the masses demanded it. And it was done. Imagine what you could do whipping up a mob. Like, you know, get people to show up outside of a Supreme Court justice's house for a decision they don't like, you know, that kind of thing. It was done to free them from long years of oppression by the counter-revolutionaries and all kinds of local tyrants. See? In other words, to liberate the productive forces. See, they had to kill all the counter-revolutionaries to liberate people from, you know, the, the repression that they were under, to liberate the productive forces. Like, you know, getting people to go armed outside of Supreme Court justices' houses when they make rulings you don't like. If we had not done so, the masses would not have been able to have lifted their heads. Since 1956, however, there's been a radical change in the situation. After six, almost seven years of their despotism, in a country, in the country as a whole, the bulk of the counter-revolutionaries have been cleared out. So it took them about six years in China to clear them out. We're how far into this? Our basic task has changed from unfettering the productive forces to protecting and expanding them in the context of the new relations of production. See, they're going to protect the socialist approach to everything now. You have to always remember that they add that there. Because of the failure to understand that our present policy fits the present situation and our past policy fitted the past situation, some people want to make use of the present policy to reverse past decisions and negate the tremendous success we achieved in eliminating counter-revolutionaries. This is completely wrong. And of course, he doesn't want to be a dictator. So he says, and the masses will not permit it. See, he speaks for the masses. He's a stakeholder. In our work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries, successes were the main thing, but there were also mistakes. In some cases, there were excesses, and in others, counter-revolutionaries slipped through our net. Our policy is, quote, counter-revolutionaries must be eliminated wherever found. Mistakes must be corrected whenever discovered, end quote. Our line in the work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries is the mass line. Uh, very communist. Of course, even with the mass line, mistakes still may occur. But they will be fewer and easier to correct. The masses gain experience through struggle. From the things done correctly, they gain the experience of how things are done correctly. From mistakes made, they gain the experience of how mistakes are made. See, so when they accidentally, you know, killed people who they shouldn't have killed... They learned, they learned from their mistakes, so it's okay. That was important. It was actually good that they committed those heinous crimes and those heinous violations of individual rights. Wherever mistakes have been discovered in the work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries, steps have been taken or are being taken to correct them. Those not yet discovered will be corrected as soon as they come to light. Imagine if they just were kept quiet. Exoneration or rehabilitation should be made known. You say, no, they couldn't keep it all quiet. That's why Chernobyl melted down. Literally, people just wouldn't tell anybody that something was wrong because they thought they would get in trouble for making a mistake. Exoneration or rehabilitation should be made known as widely as were the original wrong decisions. So there's a concept out there called a limited hangout. What you do is you occasionally admit to making mistakes to cover up for the bulk of the mistakes you make. So instead of letting it all hang out, you have a limited hangout, and that term limited hangout refers to when you tell part of a story that would um, indict you on something, but you don't tell the whole story so that people now think you've confessed to it and they don't realize that you've left out all the really bad stuff. And the term originates 
from the discussions around the Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon. And they said, oh, are we just going to let it all hang out? Somebody said, no, we're proposing more of a limited hangout. Let's tell part of the story to cover our butts. Okay, so anyway, that's, I think, what we are uh, looking at here. Um, where were we? Exoneration or rehabilitation should be made known as widely as were the original wrong decisions. I propose that a comprehensive review of the work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries be made this year or next to sum up the experience, promote justice, and counter unjust attacks. So they're going to go start a cover-up operation. They're going to put the Department of Justice on it, basically, to make sure, no, 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 everything was cool. Nationally, this review should be in the charge of the Standing Committee of the Na National People's Congress and of the National Committee of the Political Consultative Congress and locally in the charge of the People's Councils and the Committees of the Political Consultative Conference in the provinces and municipalities. little technical baseball. In this review, we must help the large numbers of cadres and activists involved in the work and not pour cold water on them. See, we can't make them feel like they did stuff wrong. We have to help them but we also are going to do some limited hangout. It would not be right to dampen their spirits. My God, look at all this stuff with like the J6 and the... We would be, it wouldn't be right to dampen AOC's spirits over that. Like when she pretended that she was almost killed. It wouldn't be right to dampen the spirits of the Capitol Police who are completely out of control. It wouldn't be right to dampen their spirits. We don't want to pour cold water on them. We want to help them. So we'll admit to some mistakes, but we're not going to actually, you know, hold anybody actually accountable. It would not be right to dampen the activists and cadres' spirits. Nonetheless, wrongs must be righted when discovered. Huh. When discovered. You mean when forced into the public consciousness or when carefully selected so that it looks like you're being more honest than you are. This must be the attitude of all the public security organs, the pure, uh, procurator's offices and the judicial departments, prisons and agencies charged with the reform of cr criminals through labor. The, he's referring to labor prisons. They're for people who thought wrong. That's the thought reform prisons. The, actually, it's the labor prisons that are worse than the thought reform prisons that Lifton was talking about. We hope that wherever possible, members of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress members of the National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference and the People's Deputies will take part in this review. This will be of help in perfecting our legal system and in dealing correctly with counter-revolutionaries and other criminals. The present situation with regard to counter-revolutionaries can be described in these words. There are still counter-revolutionaries, but not many. In the first place, there are still counter-revolutionaries. Some say that there aren't any more left and all is well, and that we can therefore lay our heads on our pillows and just drop off to sleep, but this is not the way things are. The fact is there are still counter-revolutionaries. Of course, it's not to say you'll find them everywhere and in every organization. And we must continue to fight them. It must be understood that the hidden counter-revolutionaries still at large will not take things lying down, but will certainly seize every opportunity to make trouble. The U.S. imperialists and the Chiang Kai-shek clique are constantly sending in secret agents to carry on disruptive activities. That might actually have been true. Even after all the existing counter-revolutionaries have been combed out, new ones are likely to emerge. If we drop our guard, we shall be badly fooled and shall suffer severely. Counter-revolutionaries must be rooted out with a firm hand wherever they are found making trouble. But taking the country as a whole, there are certainly not many counter-revolutionaries. It would be wrong to say that there are still large numbers of counter-revolutionaries in China. Acceptance of that view would likewise result in a mess. 3. 
the question of the cooperative transformation of agriculture. This has, I think, a lot more inside baseball, and I'm not really going to uh, go through this part for you. You're welcome to come read it. Um, lots of talking about struggle, lots of, and I should, I guess, but I'm not because it's very technical, but this is where he's launching the agricultural half of the Great Leap Forward, which led to lots of starving. This is where he adopted Lysenkoism in Chinese agriculture. We have a rural population over 500 million, so how our peasants fare has the most important bearing on the development of our economy and the consolidation of our state power. In my view, the situation is basically sound. The cooperative transformation of agriculture has been successfully accomplished, and this has resolved a great contradiction in our country between the socialist industrialization and the individual peasant economy, blah, blah, blah. It's also clear that it takes hard struggle to build cooperatives. Cooperatives are now in the process of gradual consolidation, where five-year plans, blah, blah, blah. Um, many people say that the peasants lead a hard life. Is this true? In one sense, it is. That is to say, because the imperialists and their agents have oppressed and exploited us for over a century, ours is an impoverished country and the standard of living. See, it's somebody else's fault that things are bad and things are hard. But like I said, this is a very technical, it's talking about how many cattles and f different things like this. Um, skip that section. Uh, four, the question of the industrialists and businessmen with regard to our transformation of our social system. The year 1956 saw the conversion of privately owned industrial and commercial enterprises into joint state private enterprises, as well as the cooperative transformation of agriculture and handicrafts. The speed and smoothness, or sorry, speed and smoothness of this conversion were not, or sorry, were closely bound up with our treating the contradictions between the working class and the national bourgeoisie as a contradiction among the people. Has this class contradiction been completely resolved? No, not yet. That will take a considerable period of time. However, some people say that the capitalists have been so remolded, so he talks a lot about the remolding of people, by the way, that they are now not very different from the workers, and that further remolding is unnecessary. Others go so far as to say that the capitalists are even better than the workers. Still others ask, if remolding is necessary, why isn't it necessary for the working class? Are these opinions correct? Of course not. In the building of a socialist society, everybody needs remolding. The exploiters and also the working people. Everybody needs remolding. Who says it isn't necessary for the working class? Of course the remolding of the exploiters is essentially different from that of the working people. And the two must not be confused. The working class remolds the whole society in class struggle and in the struggle against nature. And in the process, it remolds itself. It must ceaselessly learn in the course of work, gradually overcome its shortcomings, and never stop doing so. Take, for example, those of us present here. Many of us make some progress each year. That is to say, we are remolding ourselves each year. For myself, I used to have all sorts of non-Marxist ideas. And it was only later that I embraced Marxism. See, for myself, I used to have all kinds of racist ideas. I'm still a racist. I have to admit that I'm a racist. I am not a fully anti-racist, but I've embraced anti-racism. Doesn't that sound familiar? You're remolding yourself. Everybody has to remold themselves. The bosses have to remold themselves. The workers have to remold themselves. We need a DEI training. I learned a little Marxism, he says, from books and took the first steps in remolding my ideology, but it was mainly through taking part in class struggle over the years, you know, like the struggle sessions you have at work, that I came to be remolded. And if I'm to make further progress, I must continue to learn. Otherwise, I shall lag behind. See, you have to do the work. 
is a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-criticism, and social activism. Can the capitalists be so good that they need no more remolding? Some people contend that the Chinese bourgeoisie no longer has two sides to its character, but only one side. Is this true? No. While members of the bourgeoisie have become administrative personnel in joint state-private enterprises, huh, huh, public-private partnership, anybody? Joint state-private enterprises? And are being transformed from exploiters into working people living by their own labor, they still get a fixed rate of interest on their capital in the joint enterprises. That is, they still have not yet cut themselves loose from the roots of exploitation. Let me just read that other part just again, just because it's juicy now that we know we're talking about Klaus Schwab. While members of the bourgeoisie have become administrative personnel in joint state-private enterprises and are being transformed from exploiters into working people. Huh. Hmm. Just public-private partnerships. What are you going to do? This stakeholder capitalism. Between them and the working class, there is still a considerable gap in ideology, sentiments, and habits of life. How can it be said that they no longer have two sides of their character? Even when they stop receiving their fixed interest payments and the bourgeois label is removed, they still will need ideological remolding for quite some time. If, as is alleged, the bourgeoisie no longer has a dual character, then the capitalists will, have, uh, will no longer have the task of studying and remolding themselves. It must be said that this view does not tally either with the actual situation of our industrialists and businessmen or with what most of them want. See, you want it, right? During the past few years, most of them have been willing to, to, to study and have made marked progress. See, they all bought how to be an anti-racist. They all bought white fragility. They wanted to do the work. They wanted to. They wanted to be on the right side of history. As their thorough remolding can only be achieved in the course of work, they should engage in labor, or the work, together with staff and workers in the enterprises, like DEI training, and regard these enterprises as the chief places in which to remold themselves. But it's also important for them to change some of their old views through study. Such study should be on a voluntary basis. See, you shouldn't, you, the, the book, you need to go read the books. You need to go read White Fragility at Home to improve your work at work. How to be an anti-racist. Understanding queer things. You have to go do that. You should want to. Such studies should be on a voluntary basis. When they return to the enterprises after being in study groups for some weeks, many industrialists and businessmen find that they have more of a common language with the workers and the representatives of state ownership so that there are better possibilities for working together. That's DEI training, guys. That's your unconscious bias. Can you Do you hear it? They know from personal experience that it is good for them to keep on studying and remolding themselves. The idea mentioned above, that studying and remolding are not necessary, reflects a view not of the majority of industrialists and businessmen, but only of a small number. So the good businessmen, the good industrialists, ones who are really getting along with things and doing great in the new system, in the new system, in the new system are the ones who want to remold themselves. This is exactly what we've gone through since 2020 and all of our big businesses, all of our corporations, all of our workplaces, all of our institutions, all of our government agencies, including the military. Five, the question of the intellectuals. The contradictions within the ranks of the people in our country also find expression among the intellectuals. The several million intellectuals who worked for the old society have come to serve the new society. His academics are stupid. And the 
question that now arises is how they can fit in with the needs of the new society and how we can help them to do so. This too is a contradiction among the people. Most of our intellectuals have made marked progress during the last seven years. They have shown they are favor, in favor of the social system. Let me just back this truck up a second. They've made marked progress because they've shown they're in favor of socialism. That's progress. Progress means accepting the gnosis, accepting the socialist system. Many are diligent in studying Marxism, and some have become communists. The latter, though at present small in number, are steadily increasing. See, so many have joined the outer school. Some have joined the inner school. That's only a small number so far, but they're steadily increasing. Of course, there are still some intellectuals who are skeptical about socialism or do not approve of it, but they are a minority because they probably had cancel culture. They probably couldn't keep a job. They probably couldn't do any research. They probably get kicked out of the universities if they didn't go along with the new program. China needs the service of services of as many intellectuals as possible for the colossal, colossal task of building socialism. We should trust those who are really willing to serve the cause of socialism and should radically improve our relations with them and help them solve the problems requiring solutions so that they can give full play to their talents. Notice what he said. We're, we should love bomb academics who help our system, and we're going to do are we going to do that to the other ones? No. No, that's not what will happen. Many of our comrades are not good at uniting with intellectuals. No shit. They are stiff in their attitudes toward them, lack respect for their work, and interfere in certain scientific and cultural matters where interference is unwarranted. We must do away with all, short, all such shortcomings. Although large numbers of intellectuals, now we're going to get to the good part, have made progress, they should not be complacent. See, you got to keep going. It's not enough. You have to be, you have to get in the outer school, then you have to work your ass off through uh, criticism and struggle to get to the inner school and become communist. They must continue to remold themselves, gradually shed their bourgeois world outlook. Remember, when you join the cult, your job goes into criticism and struggle to remold yourself so that you become further in the cult. And if you do really good, you can actually become a member of the inner school, a communist. They must continue to remold themselves, gradually shed their bourgeois world outlook and acquire the proletarian communist world outlook so that they can fully fit in with the needs of the new society and unite with the workers and peasants. This, this is Klaus Schwab, man. It's not just get on with the equity justice program that we hear from the critical race theorists or the queer theorists or the gender people or whatever. And they, it's not just whatever. Oh, it's going to be an equitable society. It's not just that. This is Klaus Schwab. We are going to rewrite the social contract and we'll use a public-private partnership. It's ESG scores to pressure companies to go along. Companies that do not want to go along. We will change the youth, the young young people, to have different values to reject them and force them to come along. We will build the new economy of the future. And if you want to participate, you will do what we say. And fully fit in with the needs of the new society and unite with the workers and peasants. Right? The change in world outlook is fundamental, and up to now, most of our intellectuals cannot be said to have accomplished it. This, this, this could be exported and imported out of this, this speech from Mao, turned into corporate pablum, and imported directly into a Klaus Schwab book. 
We hope that they will continue to make progress and that in the course of work and study, they will gradually acquire the communist world outlook, become Gnostics, grasp Marxism, Leninism, and become integrated with the workers and peasants. We hope that they will not stop halfway or what is worth slide back, for there will be no future for them in going backwards. See, you're either going to get on the program and you're going to keep making progress on it, or there will be no future for you. And our brave, brave academics are going to take a stand against that? No. All the grant money, all the jobs, all the promotions, all the chairs, all the fancy fancy things, all the dinners, all are for the people who go along with it. Everybody else will have no future. And so what are people going to do? Since our, our country's social system has changed and the economic base of bourgeois ideology and has in the main been destroyed, not only is it imperative for large numbers of in, our intellectuals to change their world outlook, but it is also possible for them to do so. But through a change in world outlook, sorry, but, but a thorough change in world outlook takes a very long time. And we should spare no pains in helping them and must not be impatient. See, we're from the government and we're here to help. Actually, there are bound to be some who ideologically will always be reluctant to accept Marxism, Leninism, and Communism. We should not be too exacting in what we demand of them as long as they comply with the requirements laid down by the state and engage in legitimate pursuits. We should let them have opportunities for suitable work. Chilling. Among students and intellectuals, there has recently been a falling off in ideological and political work and some unhealthy tendencies have appeared. Some people seem to think that there is no longer any need to concern themselves with politics or the future of the motherland and the ideas, ideals of mankind. It seems as if Marxism, once all the rage, is currently not so much in fashion. This is where they're talking about activist fatigue today. Oh, we were all on fire for BLM and the drag queen stuff for a while, and people are just tired of it now. To counter these tendencies, we must strengthen our ideological and political work. They must always double down. There must always be more. Both students and intellectuals should study hard. In addition to the study of their specialized subjects, they must make progress ideologically and politically, which means they should study Marxism, current event, and current events, and politics. Not to have a correct political orientation, listen to this. Listen to this. This is exactly what I was saying earlier about Gnosticism and Hermeticism. Not to have a correct political orientation is like not having a soul. Did I say it slowly enough? Not to have a correct political orientation is not is like not having a soul. You're not a person. You don't have a soul. You don't have mind. You don't have nose. You are not a Gnostic. You don't count. They know and you don't. You are the worst kind of piece of trash possible. To not have a correct political orientation is like not having a soul. The ideological remolding in the past was necessary and has yielded positive results, but it was carried on in a somewhat rough-and-ready fashion. And the feelings of some people were hurt. This was not good. We must avoid such shortcomings in the future. All departments and organizations should shoulder their responsibilities for ideological and political work. This applies to the Communist Party, the Youth League, government departments in charge of this work, and especially to the heads of educational institutions and teachers. Our educational policy 
must enable everyone who receives an education to develop morally, intellectually, and physically. What does morally and intellectually mean? Into communism. And to become a worker with both socialist consciousness and culture. Our education policy must enable everyone who receives an education to become a worker with both socialist consciousness and culture. That's what they've done with our schools. We must spread the idea of building our country through diligence and thrift. We must help all our young people to understand that ours is still a very poor country, that we cannot change the situation radically in a short time, that only through decades of united effort by our younger generation and all our people, we still don't have equity and justice. The younger generation must do this. They understand this. They know. They demand it. Klaus Schwab, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris is what they say. We must help all our young people to understand that ours is still a very poor country, that we cannot change the situation radically. Whereas ours is not poor. It's not, but that's not the problem. In America, it's we're not equitable and just. There's no social justice. There's no equity. We're a very oppressive country. And that we cannot change the situation radically in a short time, that only through decades of united effort by our younger generation and all our people working with their own hands, can China be made prosperous and strong. The establishment of our socialist system, by the way, if you didn't catch on yet, we are going through a Maoist-style cultural revolution in this country. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast. This is James Lizzie telling you we are going through a Maoist-style cultural revolution with American characteristics in this country. And we're reading through Mao Zedong to make sure you know it. The establishment of our socialist system has opened the road leading to the ideal society of the future. But to translate this ideal into reality needs hard work. Some of our young people think that everything ought to be perfect once a socialist society is established and that they should be able to enjoy a happy life ready-made without working for it. This is unrealistic. Okay, so here we are, seven years into their revolution, seven years into their, their regime, and we're already telling the youth, by the way, you thought stuff was going to be awesome. Back to the salt mine. You thought you were going to be able to have a nice, fun, perfect life. You thought you'd be able to enjoy a happy life now that we're socialist. Looks like you were wrong. You're going to have to work. Hard labor for you. This is unrealistic. Wake up, kids. You're not walking toward utopia. You're walking toward slavery. If you're under 30 and you think that socialism is a good idea, you are working yourself into slavery. It's going to be a sales pitch of roses and things and struggle and fun and meaning. And then you're going to get your way. And oh my God, are you going to wish you didn't get your way? Six, the question of the minority nationalities. This is very short. It's one paragraph, but this is him reflecting upon, it turns out there's a long history here. I don't want to go all into it, but there was actually a perfect parallel to critical race theory done in China starting in the 1920s and culminating through um, the 1950s uh, under the Communist Party. Uh, the mino- minority nationalities in our country number more than 30 million. Although they constitute only 6% of the total population, they inhabit extensive regions which, comp- which comprise 50 to 60% of China's total area. So we're thinking like Tibet, for example. It is thus imperative to foster good relation between the Han people and the minority nationalities. The key to this question lies in overcoming Han chauvinism. This is Kamala Harris standing on stage, or Joe Biden saying we have to overcome white supremacy. America was majority white 
uh, it's still plural, uh, plurality light or white. Um, and so we have to overcome white supremacy in the same way he's saying that the Han race was 94% of the Chinese population. There are 55 minority races in China they identified. And they have to overcome their Han supremacy, their Han chauvinism, right? That's what he's saying. What actually a little deeper, the history here is that the Kuomintang tried to unify China as a national entity rather than a bunch of kind of fractured states. And they came up with this concept that they called Huaren, which is a kind of a slang term that means Chinese person. And um, what the communists did, what the CCP did, using something very much like critical race theory, was came in and said, by identifying the, the, the Huaren as Chinese people, what they actually secretly mean is the Han run, the, Chinese, the, the Han people. And what they're doing is saying that to really be a Chinese person, a Huaren, you actually have to be like the Han you have to actually be a Han run. That's the standard. And so when he says Han chauvinism, he's referring to Hua run being measured up against being Han run. Uh, and so I know this is complicated with the Chinese terms. The idea is that he's saying that the Nationalist Party came in, the Kuomintang came in, unified a single Chinese national identity that was supposed to unify the 56 races of China, which are overwhelmingly majority Han. But they set Han as the default standard, just like critical race theory says that white people are the default standard. And that if you want to qualify as, say, an American or a Brit, then you have to act white. Here it's you have to act Han. And so he says the key to this question lies in overcoming Han chauvinism. So somebody, I put this on Twitter and somebody came back to me and said, oh, James, well, he's just trying to get rid of racism in China. That's a good thing. And it's the stupidest thing I've ever seen because no, it's not. This is actually critical race theory. The critical race theory was pioneered in the Chinese context in this way. It was experimented with sort of in other ways in other Soviet places, but it was explicitly done here with the Han race in place of white. And when, when Mao says, Han chauvinism here. He means white supremacy the way that the woke or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris say it. The key to this question lies in overcoming white supremacy, is what this sentence would be if it came out of Kamala Harris's mouth today. At the same time, efforts should also be made to overcome local nationality chauvinism wherever it exists among the minority nationalities. Both Han chauvinism and local nationality chauvinism are harmful to the unity of the nationalities. They represent one kind of contradiction among the people which should be resolved. In fact, what we're looking at is so the dialectic progresses in the critical race theory book where Richard Delgado explains how you deal with critical race theory and race crit, and then you divide into different races like Latin crit and Asian crit and so on. And so the dialectic progresses. We've already done some work to this end. In most of the areas inhabited by minority nationalities, there has been considerable improvement in the relations between the nationalities. I think you're supposed to say free Tibet at this moment. But a number of problems remain to be solved. In some areas, both Han chauvinism and local nationality chauvinism still exist to a serious degree. This demands full attention. Every time you hear that, Han chauvinism, local nationality, you should be hearing we have white supremacy and uh, structural racism um, as a result of the efforts of the people of all nationalities over the last few years, democratic reforms and socialist transformations have in the main been completed in most of the minority nationality areas. Democrat reforms have not yet been carried out in Tibet because conditions are not yet ripe. 
According to the 17-article agreement reached between the Central People's Government and the local government of Tibet, the reform of the social system must be carried out. I wonder why there's 17. 17 comes up so often with these people. But the timing can only be decided when the great majority of the people of Tibet and the local leading public figures consider it opportune, and one should not be impatient. It has now been decided not to proceed with democratic reforms in Tibet during the period of the second five-year plan. Whether to proceed with them in the period of the third five-year plan can only be decided in the light of the situation at the time. So the stuff I skipped with agriculture, by the way, I talked about the first five-year plan, the second five-year plan, the third five-year plan. So they do these cycles, these five-year-long cycles to, to five-year plans to completely revamp everything, to transform the whole world, right? So they promise you that at the end of the five years, which will only take four, two plus two equals five, will only take four with the enthusiasm of the people. At the end of these five-year cycles, you're going to have a whole transformed society. But the trick is, is there's another five-year plan waiting for you and another five-year plan waiting for you after that and another one after that. So it's really a never-ending cycle of revolution. Seven, overall consideration and proper arrangement. By overall consideration, we mean the consideration that embraces the 600 million people of our country. Drawing up plans, handling affairs, or thinking over problems, we must proceed from the fact that China has a population of 600 million. We must never forget this fact. Why do we make a point of this? It is possible that there are people who are still unaware that we have a population of 600 million. Of course, everyone knows this, but when it comes to actual practice, some people forget all about it and act as though the fewer the people, the smaller the circle, the better. Those who have this small circle mentality abhor the idea of bringing every positive factor into play, of uniting with everyone who can be united with, that's an important clause, and of doing everything possible to turn negative factors into positive ones so as to serve the great cause of building a socialist society. I don't know that there's a ton going. This is construction's vigorous, blah, blah, blah. Or I'm not going to read this part. Eight. This is important. On let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend, and long-term coexistence and mutual supervision. So the hundred flowers campaign was yet another uh, disaster. Historians um, wondered, but seemed to have decided as to whether Mao did this on purpose. What happened with the hundred flowers campaign, which is Bai Hua in Chinese, let a hundred flowers blossom and a hundred schools of thought contend, right? So it sounds good. Hundred flowers blooming refers to let a hundred schools of thought bloom. Let there be free speech, free expression, free thought, and let the hundred schools of thought that bloom contend with one another. Let the ideas duke it out in a marketplace of ideas. So it's a free speech measure. And so the question that historians have had with the Hundred Flowers campaign, because what happens in the end, two years after this, he implements this in, in around 56, 57. By 59, if I remember my dates right, I'd have to go check. It's a catastrophe. He's had enough. And what they ended up doing was making huge lists of people who disagreed with the government. They went and rounded them all up and either imprisoned them or killed them. And so the question was, did Mao do that on purpose? Did he set this as a trap? Hey, we're going to have free speech in our country. Go ahead, say whatever you want. And then he found out who all the bad guys were and he went and got all the people against him were and they went and rounded them up. And historians have decided they probably did not work that way. In all likelihood, what happened was he really did believe that socialism, as you're going to hear him argue, would allow for free expression without a threat to socialism, which is incorrect because it's false. And uh, when this started to get out of hand, he clamped down on it, ended the free speech campaign, and used the relentless 
intelligence gathering and list making and communist parties do to have identified those enemies and then went and rounded them up because they knew who they were by their publications and so on. So, quote, let a hundred flowers blossom, let a hundred schools of thought contend, and long-term coexistence and mutual supervision. How did these slogans come to be put forward? They were put forward in the light of China's specific conditions, in recognition of the continued existence of various kinds of contradictions in socialist society, and in response to the country's urgent need to speed up its economic and cultural development. Letting a hundred flowers blossom and a hundred schools of thought contend is the policy for promoting progress in the arts and sciences and a flourishing socialist culture in our land, academic freedom, and artistic freedom. Different forms and styles in art should develop freely, and different schools in science should contend freely. We think that it is harmful to the growth of art and science if administrative measures are used to impose one particular style of art or school of thought and to ban another. So this is explicitly a free speech, free expression measure, by the way. that Again, historians hash out the question, was he setting a trap? And they've decided pretty clearly, probably not. It just didn't work out. And he used it as a trap in the end, un- unquestionably. He used this to round up hundreds of thousands of people who criticized him or made inappropriate materials according to rules that changed a couple years later because regimes are so safe and good. Questions of right and wrong in the arts and science should be settled through free discussion in artistic and scientific circles and through practical work in these fields. They should not be settled in an over-simple manner. This isn't particularly relevant, I don't think, yet, at least to our circumstances. They are still pretty carefully making sure we get kicked off of social media for saying the wrong thing. A period of trial is often needed to determine whether something is right or wrong. Throughout history, at the outset, new and correct things often failed to win recognition from the majority of people and had to develop by twists and turns through struggle. Often, correct and good things were first regarded not as fragrant flowers but as poisonous weeds. Copernicus's theory of the solar system and Darwin's theory of evolution were once dismissed as erroneous and had to win out over bitter opposition. Chinese history offers many similar examples. In a socialist society, the conditions for growth of the new are radically different from and far superior to those in the old society. See, there's no entrenched forces to try to keep, uh, you know, like your your own capitalist advantage uh, to suppress the truth so that you can have your bourgeois advantage, right? None of those. Those don't exist in socialism except that literally this entire essay so far has been about how if you don't agree with socialism, you're a problem and we're going to have to fix you or silence you, or take away your free speech, or exclude you, or imprison you, or kill you. In socialist society, he pretends, the conditions for the growth of the new are radically different from and far superior to those in the old society. They love to lie to each other and themselves about how cool socialism is. Nevertheless, it often happens that new rising forces are held back and sound ideas stifled. Besides, even in their absence, Uh, Even in the absence of deliberate suppression, the growth of new things may be hindered simply through a lack of discernment. It is therefore necessary to be careful about questions of right and wrong in the arts and sciences, to encourage free discussion, and avoid hasty conclusions. We believe that such an attitude will help ensure a relatively smooth development of the arts and sciences. So barring what he said about socialist society, actually almost everything in that paragraph is true and correct. Uh, it's just a lie in terms of what is going to happen when he unleashes it in social society because of his incorrect assumption he gives there about that, which he's going to end up backtracking on and again, killing hundreds of thousands of people who disagreed with him because they outed themselves. Marxism, he says too, has developed through struggle. At the beginning, Marxism was subjected to all kinds of attack and regarded as a poisonous weed. (laughs) It is. 
This is still the case in many parts of the world, because it is. In socialist countries, it develops, it enjoys a different position. Let me be biblical for a minute and say, judge it by its fruits. What kind of fruit does this weed grow? Remember when Mao's giving this speech, he's about to embark on a project called the Great Leap Forward that's going to, not only this hundred flowers thing, he's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people who disagree with him, but then the Great Leap Forward is going to kill 55 million or thereabouts. But non-Marxist and what is more anti-Marxist ideologies even exist in these countries. In China, although socialist transformation has in the main been completed as regards the systems of, system of ownerships, and although the large-scale turbulent class struggles of the masses characteristics of times of revolution have in the main come to an end, there are still remnants of the overthrown landlord and comprador uh, classes. There is still a bourgeoisie, and the remolding of the petty bourgeoisie has only just started. Class struggle is by no means over. The class struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the class struggle between the various political forces, and the class struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie in the ideological field will still be protracted and tortuous and at times even very sharp. The proletariat seeks to transform the world according to its own world outlook. And so does the bourgeoisie. See, they both are vying to be the demiurge in the society, one that has a gnosis and will therefore unmake the prison of being one that does not and will therefore maintain it. That's the way they see it. In this respect, the question of which will win out, socialism or capitalism, is not really yet settled. Marxists remain a minority throughout the entire population as well as among the intellectuals. Therefore, Marxism must continue to develop through struggle. Marxism can only develop through struggle. And this is not only true of the past and present, it is necessarily true of the future as well. It's a clash of conflicts because it's hermetic and Hegelian in nature. What is correct invariably develops in the course of struggle with what is wrong. The true, the good, and the beautiful always exist by contrast with the false, the evil, and the ugly, and grow and struggle with them. As soon as something erroneous is rejected in a particular truth accepted by mankind, new truths begin to struggle with new errors. Again, this is, if you know the background, this is very Manichaean. Such struggles will never end. This is the law of development of truth and, naturally, of Marxism. It will take a fairly long period of time to decide the issue in the ideological struggle between socialism and capitalism in our country. The reason is that the influence of the bourgeoisie and of the intellectuals who come from the old society, the very influence which constitutes their class ideology, will persist in our country for a long time. If this is not understood at all or insufficiently understood, the gravest of mistakes will be made and the necessity of waging struggle in the ideological field will be ignored. Ideological struggle differs from other forms of struggle since it is uh, since only the method, sorry, since the only method used is painstaking reasoning, not crude coercion. The Iron Law book projection never misses, by the way. Today socialism is in an advantageous position in the ideological struggle. The basic power of the state is in the hands of the working people led by the proletariat, a.k.a. led by the stakeholders. The Communist Party is strong in its prestige high. Although there are defects and mistakes in our work, every fair-minded person can see that we are loyal to the people, that we are both determined and able to build up our motherland together with them, and that we have already achieved great successes and will achieve still greater ones. Good time to remind you that he's about to launch on a program that is one of the greatest economic disasters in human history. They kill 55 million of his 600 million people, nearly 10% of them. The vast majority of the bourgeoisie and the intellectuals who come from the old society are patriotic and are willing to serve the flourishing socialist motherland. 
They know they will have nothing to fall back on, and their future cannot possibly be bright if they turn away from the socialist cause and from working uh, from the working people led by the Communist Party. Do you hear that? The vast majority of the bourgeoisie and the intellectuals understand that they have nothing to fall back on unless they go forward with the program, the socialist cause. People may ask, since Marxism is accepted as the guiding ideology by the majority of the people in our country, who are the people? The people who support it. Can it be criticized? Certainly it can. Marxism is a scientific truth and fears no criticism. If it did, and if it could be overthrown by criticism, it would be worthless. <laughs> yep. But we're talking about scientific here, the way that Marx used it, which is the way that Hegel used it, which is the way that Plato used it, which is to say it's the technocratic system. It's not scientific. It's scientistic. It is a technocratic system, and it can be overthrown by criticism. In fact, Marx found, or sorry, Mao found this out a couple of years later after this speech, and he rounded up all the people who criticized it and had them put down. In fact, aren't the idealists criticizing Marxism every day and in every way? And those who harbor bourgeois and petty bourgeois ideas and do not wish to change, see, it's a character fault for them. Aren't they also criticizing, criticizing Marxism in every way? Marxists should not just harboring those ideas criticizes Marxism in every way. Marxists should, Marxists should not be afraid of criticism from any quarter. Yeah. Quite the contrary, they need to temper and develop themselves and win new positions in the teeth of criticism and in the storm and stress of struggle. Remember that this transforms later into power flows from the barrel of a gun. Fighting against wrong ideas is like being vaccinated. Oof. A man develops greater immunity from disease as a result of the vaccination. Plants raised in hothouses are very unlikely to be hardy. Carrying out the policy of letting a hundred flowers blossom and a hundred schools of thought contend will not weaken but strengthen the leading position of Marxism in the ideological field. This may be why historians believe that Marx actually, or sorry, Mao actually believed this and then just took advantage of the fact. I know this is getting a little thick and it's very long, but we're going to get to some important stuff here in a minute. What should our policy be toward non-Marxist ideas? Oh, that's a good question. As far as unmistakable counter-revolutionaries and saboteurs of the socialist cause are concerned, the matter is easy. We simply deprive them of their freedom of speech. See, we're going to have a hundred flowers bloom, but they can't be ones against the, the program. That, no. We simply deprive them of their freedom of speech. Because there's a dictatorship, and that's the function of it, is to, to repress those people. But incorrect ideas among the people are quite a different matter. Will it do to ban such ideas and deny them any opportunity for expression? Certainly not. But it is only few. But it is not only few. Sorry, it is not only futile, but very harmful to use crude methods in dealing with ideological questions among the people, with questions about man's mental world. You may ban the expression of wrong ideas, but the ideas will still be there. On the other hand, if correct ideas are, unless they're counter-revolutionary, right? We just ban those. He already said that. Like, you know, that maybe the vaccine was dangerous, that was banned, couldn't talk about that. Um, there are a lot of things that we couldn't talk about, right? How did the 2020 election go? Couldn't talk about that. Um, you know, maybe this whole thing in Ukraine's a bit wacky, can't talk about that. You know, there are lots of things. I get dinged on Instagram literally daily for things, and the justifications for my fact checks are literally not connected to what happens every day, every single day. Every single day. Because certain ideas have to be banned, right? You may ban the expression of wrong ideas, but the ideas will still be there. On the other hand, if correct ideas are pampered in hot houses and never expose the elements and immunized against disease, they will not win out against erroneous ones. Therefore, it is only by employing the method of discussion 
criticism and reasoning that we can really foster ideas and overcome correct ideas and overcome wrong ones. Then we can really settle issues. It is inevitable that the bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie will give expression to their own ideologies. It is inevitable that this that they will stubbornly assert themselves on political and ideological questions by every possible means. You cannot expect them to do otherwise. That's a character trait. It's a character flaw. We should not use the method of suppression and present the, prevent them from expressing themselves. We should allow them to do so and at the same time argue with them and direct appropriate criticism at them. Not just argue. Not So arguing and criticizing are different because criticizing is personal. Undoubtedly, we must criticize wrong ideas of every description. It would—it certainly would not be right to refrain from criticism, look on while wrong ideas spread unchecked, see misinformation. We have to suppress. We have to deal with misinformation. It's a major problem. It certainly would not be right to refrain from criticism, look on while wrong ideas spread unchecked, and allow them to dominate the field. Mistakes must be criticized, and poisonous weeds fought wherever they crop up. We must take steps to suppress misinformation and disinformation across social media. However, such criticism should not be dogmatic. See, only certain people who are against the really big things have to be silenced, but then the rest of the people are just doing misinformation and, and disinformation. They have to, we have to take steps. We have to, you know, put guidelines, community practices, ding them on social media, lock them out temporarily, you know, kind of train them in a very Pavlovian operant conditioning sense to behave better. However, such criticism should not be dogmatic and the metaphysical method should not be used, but rather effort should be made to apply the dialectical method. What is needed is scientific analysis and convincing argument. I bet you just said dialectic, which is not that. Dogmatic criticism settles nothing. We are against poisonous weeds of whatever kind, but we must carefully distinguish between, sometimes the words are messed up in this, we must carefully distinguish between what is really a poisonous weed and what is really a fragrant flower. Together with the masses of people, we must learn to differentiate carefully between the two and use correct methods to fight the poisonous weed. So there we have our misinformation, disinformation, uh, banning from social media discussion, which we're going through because we're going through a Maoist-style cultural revolution with American characteristics. At the same time as we criticize dogmatism, we must direct our attention to criticizing revisionism. Revisionism or right opportunism. See, the left doesn't do revision. They tell the true, honest history is a bourgeois trend of thought that is even more dangerous than dogmatism. The revisionists, the right opportunists, pay lip service to Marxism. They too attack dogmatism. But what they are really attacking is the quintessence of Marxism. They oppose or distort materialism and dialectics, oppose and try to weaken the people's democratic dictatorship in the leading role of the Communist Party, and oppose or try to weaken socialist transformation and socialist construction. Even after the basic victory of our socialist revolution, there will still be a number of people in our society who vainly hope to restore the capitalist system and are sure to fight the working class on every front, including the ideological one. And their right-hand men in this struggle are the revisionists. It means people who are going to write history the way the Marxists don't want it written. Literally, the two slogans, let our hundred flowers bloom and let a hundred schools of thought contend, have no class character. The proletariat can turn them to account and so can the bourgeoisie or others. Different classes, strata, and social groups have their own views on what are fragrant flowers and what are poisonous weeds. Then, from the point of view of the masses, what should be the criteria today for distinguishing fragrant flowers from poisonous weeds? In other words, how are we going to tell information from misinformation and disinformation? 
we ban disinformation and we contour misinformation and then we have legitimate information, right? How, how do you tell the difference? What's the criteria? He says in their political activities, how should our people judge whether a person's words or deeds are right and wrong? See if this makes any sense to what we're experiencing. On the basis of the principles of our constitution, the will of the overwhelming majority of our people and the common political positions, I think when you invoke this many things, what it means is he's using his own authority and trying to pretend it's somebody else's, which have been proclaimed on various occasions by our political parties. We consider that broadly speaking, the criteria should be as follows. One, words and deeds should help to unite and not divide all the people's, uh, the people of all our nationalities. <laughs> Two, they should be beneficial and not harmful to socialist transformation and socialist construction. Three, so this is how you determine which ideas are information, misinformation, and disinformation in today's parlance. One, words and deeds should help to unite and not divide the people of all our nationalities. The people, the people who agree already, the socialists. Two, they should be beneficial and not harmful to socialist transformation and socialist construction. Three, they should help to consolidate, not undermine or weaken the people's democratic dictatorship. Four, they should help to consolidate and not undermine or weaken democratic centralism. We should just capitalize these D's in democratic for democratic party in the United States, shouldn't we? Five, they should help to strengthen and not shake off or weaken the leadership of the, it says communist, but democratic party. Six, they should be beneficial and not harmful to international socialist unity and the unity of the peace-loving people of the world. That's something straight out of the United Nations. Of these six criteria, the most important are the two about the socialist path and the leadership of the party. That's how you're going to determine what information is a flower, a fragrant flower, versus a poisonous weed. That's how you're going to tell information from misinformation and disinformation. And to respond accordingly, if it's disinformation, it's simple. We take away their freedom of speech. We take them off social media. We get them in trouble, depending on your country. We put them in jail, maybe, or fine them depending on your country. However, how do we determine if it's misinformation or disinformation? If it's information, we can promote it. We can, we can amplify it. We can privilege it in the algorithms. How do you determine? Of these six criteria, the most important are the two about the socialist path and the leadership of the party. It must reify the party. It must reinforce the party's power. And it must support socialism. That's how you determine what the true answers are. These criteria are put forward not to hinder, but to foster the free discussion of questions among the people. If you recall, in the recent UNESCO thing I went through in a podcast series called The Strange Death of the University, I went through how they said that they were going to absolutely forbid any research that uh, supports unsustainable practices, including the fossil fuel industry, for example. And it was going to be a full commitment to... to to sustainable practices and sustainable everything in the university, right? And then they said explicitly that this will increase academic freedom. These criteria are put forward. This is Mao again, not to hinder, but to foster the free discussion of questions among the people. Remember who the people are? Remember who the people are. It's not you if you don't agree with them. It's only them. Those who disapprove these criteria can still state their own views and argue their case. See how easy it is to get confused about what he's talking about, though, if you don't remember that when he says the people, he only means socialists. Those who disapprove these criteria can still state their own views and argue their case. However, he doesn't call those people people. 
However, so long as the majority of the people have clear-cut criteria to go by, criticism and self-criticism can be conducted along proper lines. And these criteria can be applied to people's words and deeds to determine whether they are right or wrong, whether they are fragrant flowers or poisonous sweets. So you say whatever you want, we're just going to contour social media so that you are shadow banned or removed or silenced or censored or whatever if you don't say stuff that supports our agenda. This is exactly what we are experiencing. These are political criteria, he says, explicitly. Naturally, to judge the validity of scientific theories, this is just gorgeous. Naturally, to judge the validity of scientific theories or assess the aesthetic value of works of art, other relevant criteria are needed. But these six political criteria are applicable to all activities in the arts and sciences. In a socialist country like ours, can there possibly be any useful scientific or artistic activity which runs counter to these political criteria? And we have that explicitly in that UNESCO document about sustainability. This is, an, this is a cultural revolution, a Maoist cultural revolution with American characteristics. The views set out above are based in China's specific historical conditions. Conditions vary in different socialist countries and with different communist parties. Therefore, we do not maintain that they should or must adopt the Chinese way. Yeah, they're in terms of sustainability and inclusion now. The slogan, quote, long-term coexistence and mutual supervision is also a product of China's specific historical conditions. It was not put forward all of a sudden, but had been in the making for several years. The idea of long-term coexistence has been there for a long time. When the socialist system was in the main established last year, the slogan was formulated in explicit terms. So it's 1956. Why should the bourgeois and petty bourgeois democratic parties be allowed to exist side by side with the party of the working class over a long period of time? Because we have no reason for not adopting the policy of long-term coexistence with all those national parties. Guess what? Here comes a clause. So he's saying, why can't we just have all the parties? The parties can all coexist, right? Because but there is no reason for not adopting the policy of long-term coexistence with all those political parties which are truly devoted to the task of uniting the people for the cause of socialism and which enjoy the trust of the people who are the people who support socialism only and nobody else. As early as June 1950, at the second session of the first National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference, I put the matter this way. Quote, the people in their government have no reason to reject anyone or deny him the opportunity of making a living and rendering service to the country, provided he is really willing to serve the people, and provided he really helped and did a good turn when the people were faced with difficulties and keeps doing good without giving up halfway. End quote. So see, nobody should be canceled. This is literally him justifying cancel culture, what we call cancel culture today. Nobody should be canceled. Nobody should be denied the opportunity of making a living, rendering service to the country, as long as they do what we say. Everybody else is on their own. Or worse. What I was discussing here, he says, was the political basis for the long-term coexistence of the various parties. See, if we're going to have different factions, different parties, different views... There's only one way to have them long-term coexist. They all have to adhere to the socialist program. He says, It is the desire as well as the policy of the Communist Party to exist side-by-side side with the Democratic parties for a long time to come. But whether the Democratic parties can long remain in existence depends not merely on the desire of the Communist Party, but on how well they acquit themselves and on whether they enjoy the trust of the people. Again, same thing. 
This is when with cancel culture, they say you have freedom of speech, but not freedom from accountability or freedom from consequences. This is Mao saying the same thing. This is our lives now. We are going through a Maoist style cultural revolution with American characteristics. Mutual supervision among the various parties is also a long-established fact in the sense that they have long been advising and criticizing each other. Mutual supervision is obviously not a one-sided matter. It means that the Communist Party can exercise supervision over the Democratic parties and vice versa. Why should the Democratic parties be allowed to exercise supervision over the Communist Party? Because a, a party, as much as an individual, has a great need to hear opinions different from its own. So the Communist Party is going to hear other opinions. We all know that supervision over the Communist Party is mainly exercised by the working people, socialists, and the party membership, so outer school and inner school of the existing cult. But it augments the benefit to us to have supervision by the Democratic parties too. Of course, the advice and criticism exchanged by the Communist Party and the Democratic parties will play a positive supervisory role only when they conform to the six political criteria given above. So you can coexist, you can mutually supervise us, we got you, you got us, criticize us, help us get better, only under our six political criteria that are already, one of which is that you support the Communist Party and strengthen it and do nothing to depose it. Thus, we hope that in order to fit in with the needs of the new society, there's a change coming, there's nothing you can do about it. Those who go along with it are going to be treated well, those who don't aren't. This is a communist expression. We hope that in order to fit in with the needs of the new society, all the democratic parties will pay attention to ideological remolding and strive for long-term coexistence with the communist party and mutual supervision. The fact of the matter is that these businesses, these leaders in faith, these leaders in, in institutions that have been told there's a change coming, there's nothing you can do to stop it. If you go along with this, it's going to be good for you. If you don't, it's going to be bad for you. Have been given a Maoist line. That was Maoist insurgency into our institutions that we weren't able to recognize because we have redwashed education that hasn't taught these things to us, and it worked. And our institutions got captured very quickly, especially since 2011 or 12, um, so the last decade or so. Nine, on the question of disturbances created by small numbers of people. In 1956, small numbers of workers and students went in certain places went on strike. The immediate cause of these disturbances was the failure to satisfy some of their demands for material benefits. So the socialist system wasn't working for them and they were mad, of which some should and could have been met while others were out of place and excessive and therefore could not be met for the time being. Just wait. Remember, the next five years after this, they're going to kill 55 million people, nearly 10% of his population. Speaking of not being able to meet needs. But a more important cause was bureaucracy on the part of the leadership. In some areas, the responsible for such bureaucratic mistakes fell on the higher authorities, but those at lower levels were not to blame. Another cause of these disturbances was the lack of ideological and political education among the workers and students. See if they just were more equitable. The same year, in some agricultural cooperatives, there were also disturbances created by a few of their members, and here too the main causes were bureaucracy on the part of the leadership and a lack of educational work among the masses. It should be admitted that among the masses, some are prone to pay attention to immediate, partial, and personal interests and do not understand or do not sufficiently understand long-range national and collective interests because of lack of political and social experience, so they're not sufficiently communist, right? So they expect things to work, and when they don't work, they're not sacrificing enough for the whole. That's the idea here. They're putting the parts before the whole in terms of Marxist holistic thinking. Because of a lack of political and social experience, quite a number of young people readily 
uh, cannot readily see the contrast between the old China and the new, and it is not easy for them to thoroughly uh, thoroughly to comprehend the hardships our people went through in the struggle to free themselves from the oppression of the imperialists and the Guomintang reactionaries, or the long years of hard work needed before a fine socialist society can be established. See, so now what he's got seven years in is that kids who were children under the revolution are becoming teenagers and young adults, and they're like, this actually sucks, and he's saying, well, you didn't know how bad it was before, and that's your problem, so get on board. That is why we must constantly carry on lively and effective political education among the masses, indoctrination and brainwashing, and should always tell them the truth <clears throat> about the difficulties that crop up and discuss with them how to surmount these difficulties. We do not approve of disturbances because contradictions among the people can be resolved through the method of unity, criticism, unity. No disturbances. We can fix it with your struggle sessions. While disturbances are bound to cause some losses and are not conductive to the advance of socialism. So don't be disruptive. We believe that the masses of people support socialism, conscientiously observe discipline, and are reasonable, defined as accepting the reasonableness of socialism, and we will certainly not take part in disturbances, or sorry, and will certainly not take part in disturbances without cause, but this does not mean the possibility of disturbances by the masses no longer exists in our country. On this question, we should pay attention. So those just happened in China, by the way, over the, the COVID stuff during the World Cup. On this question, we should pay attention to the following. One, in order to root out the causes of disturbances, we must resolutely overcome bureaucracy. They always say that. They never do it. Greatly improve ideological and political education. More brainwashing. And deal with all contradictions properly. More unity, criticism, unity, struggle sessions. If this is done, generally speaking, there will be no disturbances. Two, when disturbances do occur as a result of poor work on our part, then we should... So you're not going to be able to, like, cause a fuss. You're just going to get sent to HR and have another DEI training in order to come back to work. When disturbances do occur as a result of poor work on our part, then we should guide those involved onto the correct path. Use the disturbances as special means for improving our work and educating the cadres and the masses, and find solutions to those problems which were previously left unsolved. In handling any disturbance, we should take pains and not over, uh, not use over-simple methods or hastily declare the matter closed. The ringleaders in disturbances should not be summarily expelled except for those who have committed criminal offenses or are active counter-revolutionaries. What a useful term, domestic terrorists, right? And have to be punished by law. In a large country like ours, there is nothing to get alarmed about if small numbers of people create disturbances. On the contrary, such disturbances will help us get rid of bureaucracy. So, yeah. There are also small numbers of individuals in our society who, flouting public interest, willfully break the law and commit crimes. They are apt to take advantage of our policies and distort them and deliberately put forward unreasonable demands in order to incite the masses or deliberately spread rumors to create trouble and disrupt the public order. We do not propose to let these individuals have their way. On the contrary, proper legal action must be taken against them. They're going to be in standing room only prisons under Tiananmen Square, standing dick to dick with somebody else until they die. Punishing them is the demand of the masses. See, it's not it's not Mao, it's the people telling Mao he has to do that. And it would run counter to the popular will if they were not public, punished. 10. Can bad things be turned into good things? We're very deep into Hegel and Hermeticism with that. Uh, Hegel had this concept called the cunning of reason, where he believed that basically reason, because it's a f fake image of what... What, uh, of God's thought is intrinsically evil. It's a very Gnostic way of thinking about it. But the 
the process of thinking is what moves history forward and thus actualizes God, and thus the evil of reason becomes good by doing good things in the world. And so this is the cunning of reason. Is Basically, it's a, it's a Hegelian theodicy for why bad things are happening, but they become good. You know, like murdering 55 million people teaches you about the contradictions and allows you to reduce the amount of bureaucracy. In our society, as I said, as I have said, sorry, disturbances by the masses are bad and we do not approve of them, but when disturbances do occur, they enable us to learn lessons, to overcome bureaucracy and educate the cadres and the masses. In this sense, bad things can be turned into good things. Disturbances thus have a dual character. Every disturbance can be regarded this way. We're going to straight hermetic magic now. Everybody knows that the Hungarian incident was not a good thing, except the Hungarians who got out from under it. But it too had a dual character. Because of because our Hungarian comrades took proper action in the course of the incident, what was a bad thing has eventually turned into a good one. Hungary is now more consolidated than ever, and all the other countries in the socialist camp have also learned a lesson. These people are so brutal with how they think about how the world works. Similarly, the worldwide campaign against communism, the people... Uh, and the people, which the people, the support communism, which took place in the latter half of 1956 was, of course, a bad thing. But it served to educate and temper the communist parties and the working class in all countries, and thus it has turned into a good thing. Hegel's cunning of reason all over again. Doesn't matter how many people die, they teach you how to do it better. In the storm and stress of the period of this period, a number of people in many countries withdrew from the Communist Party. Withdrawal from the party reduces its membership and is, of course, a bad thing. But there is a good side to it too. Vacillating elements who are unwilling to carry on have withdrawn, and the vast majority who are staunch party members can be the better united for the struggle. Why isn't this a good thing? So ideological concentration, good, cunning of reason, Hegel. Bad, bad, bad. To sum up, we must learn to look at problems from all sides, seeing the reverse as well as the obverse side of things. In given conditions, a bad thing can lead to good results and a good thing to bad results. More than 2,000 years ago, Lao Tzu said, Good fortune lieth within bad, bad fortune lurketh within good. When the Japanese shot their way into China, they called this a victory. Huge parts of China's territory were seized, and the Chinese called this a defeat. But victory was conceived in China's defeat, while the defeat was conceived in Japan's victory. Hasn't history proved this true? So now he's pulled out some ancient Taoist philosophy so that he can have Marxist-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. People all over the world are now discussing whether or not a third world war will break out. Aren't we? On this question, too, we must be mentally prepared to do some analysis. We stand firmly for peace and against war, but if the imperialists insist on unleashing another war, we should not be afraid of it. Our attitude on this question is the same as our attitude on our attitude toward any disturbance. First, we are against it. Second, we are not afraid of it. The First World War was followed by the birth of the Soviet Union with a population of 200 million. The Second World War was followed by the emergence of the socialist camp with a combined population of 900 million. If the imperialists insist on launching a Third World War, it is certain that several hundred million more will turn to socialism, and then there will not be much room left on Earth for the imperialists. It is also likely that the whole structure of imperialism will ultimately, or sorry, will completely collapse. Imagine if the powers that be wanted to spark a third world war so that it transforms most of the remaining population into socialists. That would be weird, wouldn't it? 
In given conditions, each of the two opposing aspects of a contradiction invariably transforms itself into its opposite as a result of the struggle between them. Here, it is the conditions which are essential. Without the given conditions, neither of the two contradictory aspects can transform itself into the opposite. So you have to rig up the system so that you're going to collide opposites such that you control how the reaction or the conclusion of that goes so that it goes in the direction you want it to go. That's Hegelian practice or praxis, I should say. Of all the classes in the world, uh, the proletariat is the one which is most eager to change its position. And next comes the semi-proletariat, for the former possesses nothing at all, while the latter is hardly any better off. The United States now controls a majority in the United Nations and dominates many parts of the world. This state of affairs is temporary and will be changed one of these days. How about that? Are we at those days? China's position... As a poor country denied its rights and international affairs will also be changed. The poor country will change into a rich one. The country denied its rights into one enjoying them. A transformation of things into their opposites. Here, the decisive conditions are the socialist system and the concerted efforts of a united people. A little uncomfortable. Um, let's see, we're almost at the bottom 11 on practicing economy. Uh, this is a little bit of um, inside baseball wish to speak briefly on practicing economy. We want to carry on large-scale construction, but our country is still very poor. Herein lies a contradiction. One way of resolving it is to make a sustained effort to practice strict economy in every field. And so I'm not going to read the next paragraph, but it's very detailed about how they're trying to make themselves more industrial, more industrious as well. The Chinese Communist Party, the Democratic Party, the Democrats with no party affiliation, the intellectuals, industrialists, and businessmen, workers, peasants, and handicraft, short all of our 600 million people, must strive for increased production and economy against, the ex against extravagance and waste. This is of prime importance, not only economically. What he's doing is he's actually setting up his justification for the Great Leap Forward, which he introduces at the very end here. And again, I'm not going to read this whole section, I don't think, because I've made my point the Great Leap Forward is not the point of this podcast. 12, China's path to industrialization. And he goes through a lot of how we're going to increase grain and steel production to these crazy high numbers, which was what they did in the Great Leap Forward that killed 55 million people. So the rest, I know I've kind of set that up and talked about it, but the rest of this speech, parts 11 and 12, are him justifying what's coming next in China, which is a Great Leap Forward, which is a Great Leap actually into a furnace or a blender. It destroyed China. It destroyed 10% of the population, almost 8 or 9%, maybe at least. Very uh, bad circumstance. One of the worst mistakes in history. One of the worst economic disasters in history. Bad enough to get Mao kicked out of power. And so um, that's not my point, though. Just know that what this closes with is the sales pitch that justifies what makes sound great, how they're going to use all this crap that he just talked about, how great they've made China through the cultural revolutions that he's putting them through, which is what we're experiencing here in America now. And the next step is a great leap forward. And that's going to make everything great. And what actually happened was it was one of the biggest disasters in human history. So right now we're going through all the same stuff. And then right after it's supposed to be a great reset. And then we're supposed to go forward from 2030 into a sustainable, inclusive future that's going to be awesome. And history doesn't exactly repeat, but it rhymes. And that's really the point of the podcast. I want everybody, I know it's three hours. I want people to understand, though, that we are going through a cultural revolution, a Maoist-style cultural revolution with American characteristics. The speech I just read from February of 1957 from Mao Zedong, or most of, that I read most of, sets up 
his justification, first of all, why all that's going great, much of that should have felt very familiar to you if you've lived through the last five years in America. So you know we're going through a Maoist-style revolution with American characteristics now. You know that CRT, SEL, critical race theory, social-emotional learning, um, queer theory, and all the rest of the critical theories and so on are the driving theoretical elements. You see the methods, you see the brainwashing, the study, the shui the the dojang, the struggle, etc. You see all this stuff. The parallels are undeniable that that's what we're going through. But then the essay, or the, sorry, the, the, the uh, speech ends by him setting up the justification, which he, you know, set up earlier throughout the speech as well, for what he's about to launch next which is the great leap forward. And I say, we're going through the same thing and we're setting up a great reset. And I predict similar consequences. I predict similar consequences. I do not think history will fail to rhyme in this case. I think the great reset is going to kill tens, if not hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion people. I honestly mean that if we aren't able to um, break its momentum and not Basically, we have to break the the rhyme that history is trying to have. And the way that we do that is by recognizing that we're in this Maoist circumstance and rejecting it and rejecting that. What does that mean practically? It means using lawfare, using political mechanisms and using outright public outcry and demand that these people who are ruining our lives and ruining our world and trying to seize control using Maoist tactics must be removed from power before they're allowed to do it. We need to fire them. We need to sue them. We need to empower people in positions of authority, whether political or corporate or institutional, to get these people out of the positions of power they're abusing. That is the absolute key thing to do. Lawsuits will go a very long way when strategic. They will hit very hard. We're getting very close to the point where those lawsuits are going to start falling and they're going to start falling like hammers. We have to hold out and not fall into the reactionary mode that even Mao was talking about in 1957, which they will take advantage of to suppress the counter-revolutionaries further. Uh, So that's the point here. What we're going through is the American Cultural Revolution. We could put that differently. It's Mao's Cultural Revolution updated with American characteristics. It's being foisted upon us by our leaders who are in league with global entities like the United Nations World Economic Forum that have adopted this philosophy that you can read. The the things that I just read from Mao are reflected in UNESCO policy. They could have been taken out paragraph at a time, put into an updated language and been in Klaus Schwab's books. We must understand what we're going through. We can hear it in Joe Biden's speeches and Kamala Harris's speeches and the lies of the Democrats and the squads. These people are Maoists, and if they're not Maoists, if they're in the outer school and they don't know they're Maoists, they're using Mao's techniques and Mao's goals and Mao's objectives to uh, transform our country or transform the West into a socialist shithole that's not going to work and it's going to be a complete catastrophe they even have the arrogance just like mal was setting up for a great leap forward to set use it to set up for a great reset and just like after that when 55 million people died and their chinese economy was devastated uh, they had to build back better it's so arrogant it's so unbelievable so i hope this was a clarifying Um, three hours of your life. Uh, We have to understand what we're dealing with. We have to understand it clearly, and we have to start making the right kinds of decisions to stop it, to demand that it's stopped, and not to fall into the traps that are being set along the way for us 
the paths being paved to our own destruction so that we will take them and become the necessary collision of opposites that moves their agenda forward. 